All right, so everything should be good now. We'll wait and see and hear from people. Right on. It says 24 people connected right now. So hi, hello people. We'll see if uh, we hear anything. <laughs> My buddy goes, I guess I'll watch this. You could, uh, if you open up your phone and mute it, you can watch the live chat on this if you want to try to keep up with that too. Just for fun. Oh, yeah, that's not a bad idea. I've actually, I don't think I've ever done a live. Um, oh, no, it's the same. Like, you just watch it like a regular video, but you can open the chat. Oh, no, I'm saying I don't think I've done a live interview. Oh, cool. Yeah, this is my first time being live wow. on the internet. Wow, well, it's... Yeah. Oh, everybody says good already. Can hear and see. Good. Okay, maybe, I don't know, maybe we should wait a little for more people or just say screw it. <laughs> yeah, that's your call. I well, don't uh We'll just move right into it. I don't want to wait for people. Oh yeah, I heard myself there. Uh my question is what's your number? This is a cute angle for my video. <laughs> I just figured I'd say that out loud for everybody. Uh this is a good one. This is uh I'd be curious what builds you did before you had Real Street? Notable builds, or what did I do for a living? I I think he means what did you do for a living? Because why would you ask what builds you did before a performance shop? Uh, we'll just oh. go with what did you do prior to Real Street. So when I was a kid, there was a local guy um, named Jake Lamata that had a Mustang shop, and I met him when I was probably sixteen or seventeen. And worked with him until I was 27 and then left working with him to start Real Street. So it was mainly Mustangs. We didn't, uh, you know, it was dark times for the aftermarket. There were FMUs and, you know, three guys that tuned fuel injection in the country. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. So, um, it was mostly like a bolt on affair. You had a couple outlier customers that, um, that had like, neat turbo kits and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was just supercharged Mustangs were kind of the norm. What year was that? That would have been, um, you know, the late nineties up until 2005 or six. Well, that makes sense. When I was uh, graduating high school, my friend and I worked on a five liter pushrod Mustang and we had a uh, Vortec on it. And it had an FMU, and and that's yeah. when I, that's when I started. So I, that, I, I one of the guests we were joking with that, and I'm like, oh, an FMU, and uh, you know, and then we were talking about turning the math or getting a Pro 50 one with the different sample tubes. Yep. So that's drivability, and the wide open is an FMU, and you call it a day. <laughs> oh man! And once you really learn, once you learn uh, what you were doing wrong and you look back on all those poor head gaskets, you're like, that was never going to work. Those cars were so out of fuel. They were out of fuel by 440 wheel, but 42 pound injector was like, that was it. That was the top of it. You know, you couldn't get a math for anything bigger than a 40. Well, the scaling just didn't work out. And then once you got inside a stock ECU, it had like, um, I mean, the, the code in a basic handheld Pac-Man game had to be more complicated than what, they were running those engines with it was it was super basic as far as the 
the wide open throttle and timing and uh, load scaling were just not not there yet. I never got to mess with one of those old ones. We went straight to a Megasquirt product on his one. That stuff sucked, and we still had we still broke it off. We'd be driving it and doing that, and then we're like, "Oh, it's overheating." I guess we nicked the head again. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And then when it ran good enough to make power, we split the blocks. Yeah, that was always really disappointing because you could see the cycles. You know, a guy would come in, he would he would he would get you know a gear set, an off road pipe, a clutch, and then he would get a set of heads and a cam and an intake, and then he would get a blower and then he had his night of glory in the tents at the track and the next morning he had no oil pressure. And it was just like, you know, when you look back on that compared to the, the import engines, it's, it's pretty disappointing how, um, how weak those castings were, you know, you know, both Ford and Chevy, the, the engines were pretty bad and it took a lot of money to make them pretty right. You know, whereas the Japanese stuff, you can, you can just kind of like talk nice to it and they'll give you four or 500 horsepower in return. You know? <laughs> it's, it's a different world. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, what is, Oh, this is good. We'll do this one. Oh, well actually what I like to do in the start, I forgot already is I like to say, uh, have you ever heard of slapping mechanics? I mean, you're here now, so you have some inkling, right? So have you ever heard so, of it? I, I have, and I have seen a lot of the the meme posts and whatnot, but one of the guys here at Real Street that's been with us for quite a while, Hans, he's always spoke very highly of your work, and it's a lot of fun. And, and you know, he gives me the background on, like, what, um, you know, what your approach is to things. And then I did look up some stuff today. But I, to be honest with you, um, in order to not get to the point where I was taking things personal on the internet, we like getting caught up in what happens when people start to give you too much attention. I just don't really spend a lot of time on the internet. You know, like I have to um, like be on Facebook in some context for work, but um, I don't have it on my phone or anything. And, and I, um, up until having my daughter, I didn't really have the or didn't make the time to do anything but work. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of time to to mess around. And and when I was, it was just like, how can I learn more? You know, because when you're trying to figure this stuff out and you're self-employed and you you have these problems come up in a in a week a week's worth of work and you want to learn how to make the engines better and learn how to how to make more power and spend less money on parts that you broke because you didn't know what you were doing. I mean, a lot of my off time when I had it, it was spent trying to learn how to do it better. Yeah. Trying to give people service that you have already perfected. So they don't have issues, which is why they're paying you and asking you. Yeah. The learning with someone else's money is, is a bumpy road. You know, I, um, I, I got a standalone computer in like 2004 and started messing with fuel injection then and uh you know post fmu and uh <laughs> yeah it's it takes a bit of time for sure so what uh uh what standalone was that back then what did you start it was with? uh an am oh uh, so it was an am series one on a uh 2000 or 1994 toyota supra that was more or less stock with a downpipe and um it was a lot of uh, 
you know, you kind of, kind of drive it home and you get home and you sit in the driveway and you look at the computer for a little while and you wake up in the morning, you're like, ah, that's how you fix that. And, you know, you just start pecking at it. It's a lot of fun. Um, learning fuel injection, I think is a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. I had a lot of fun, uh, learning it too. Uh, what was the other, I had to like a quick thing there I was going to ask, but it was, it was fleeting. So, Oh, more of the sloppy questions. Uh, well, you said you, you don't know a lot about it, so your employee gives you, like, summaries every now and then, like, this guy's... Yeah, gonna, like, the the eights for eight grand, Yeah, like, that's pretty hard to argue. That's not brilliant, because um, there's a lot of guys that have, like, goats in a closet, and they're, like, trying to perfect this thing that they, they don't readily have the money available to finish it, but they're building a dream. Yeah. And then there's guys that are going to say... Saturday, we're going to the junkyard. My buddy's got a welder. We're going to use high-octane fuel because we don't know how to tune it, and we're going to go have some fun. And those guys, I think, um, they're having a lot of fun for not a lot of money. You know, the that that whole crew, you know, there's these guys up in the Carolinas that have these stock LS classes where they'll put rod bolts and file the rings in a stock LS and and run them with boost, and it's like, that's a lot of fun. You know, especially when you go back to the pushrod small block Ford where you have to spend like 10 or 15 grand to have a decent engine versus, you know, being able to have an LS engine and, you know, yeah, just get a thousand money. horsepower out of it. After smashing so many five liters, I was so tired of that uh, that it was very refreshing to have. We used to get the motors on a special. They were $86 with tax. For a long block with the intake and all the accessories and wiring. And, uh, yeah, like you just laugh about smashing that. And it was when I was younger right. and I had nothing but time and to be a jerk, uh, and, and do that. And then that's what I try to. A lot of people come in to sloppy mechanics because I make, I'll make like 15 memes on a Friday night and post them. And that's how they get in. They think it's like a meme page or they think, uh, it's like, how awful a weld can I show? And really, like, I say, like, it's too well uh, uh, known right now. I, I can't make it, like, economical, fun with vehicles mechanics or so. You know, it's not it's right. not ever going to happen. But that was the, the basis is that we started doing stuff as a joke, and then we learn too much, and then we share it. And then, uh, like I said to you, if someone can't explain it, well enough then they don't really know it and they're kind of lying that stuff because right. that's what i've learned is is uh i'll talk those people into a corner or make them dig their own hole and push them in it uh stuff like that uh, and it uh a little bit of it makes me a jerk but that's the angle i like to take on it because being a nice guy and doing all that stuff isn't uh whatever but that's why i started a couple of those builds like the don't bs me one and i ask people for goals because goals is like a currency for your build and probably like you know there's a threshold for economics like at some point it's insane and all the other parts for this uh a lot of it you don't need and then here you need all of it and that's just the expense and right uh, I would say to people, you know, goals, and they're like 10, 8, 9 second car, and I'm like, what about burnouts and ice cream? Like, what about building a car with your kid, doing burnouts, and getting ice cream, right. and ha making a reliable 500 wheel through an auto and a street car is actually pretty dumb. Like, it's actually a ton of power. 
And uh, I put all that info out, and I, you know, people are like, "Wow, I can do this, and I am happy." Blah blah blah. Yeah, the um, the uh, you got a fifteen hundred series truck with an LS on it, and you're going to turbocharge it. Like, there are people that will look at that and say that's dumb, and there are people that maybe they didn't have pickup trucks when they were kids and realize how fun it is to roust around in a pickup truck, and now you're going to turbo it. You know, you, I mean. Those are some pretty stout burnouts on demand at any point, you know, like that's a lot of fun to be had. Yeah, I've done a couple 2500s where I would do like rollers from 60 over 100, just annihilating the t- And people are like, I want to do that. I want to absolutely yeah. want to do that. And yeah. then I would, I had a Colorado that I left at like 850 wheel for a while. It made 1076, complete junkyard motor. And I broke I saw it. that truck. That thing looks tasty. I, yeah. uh, I got a little special spot for those. <laughs> and it was incredible. I would build one tomorrow. It was fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I would do like 1,100 footers up a hill around a corner. And <laughs> my friend was like, take a picture of it. They're like, who the hell would do this? I'm like, oh, some jerk. I have no clue. Oh, man. Yeah. No, that's that's solid good fun. So that's solid what I, good fun. I tried to push to people. Like, you don't have to have an eight-second car and be miserable. Like you were saying with the guys – yanking motors and actually having fun because the guys with trailers trying to impress the each other they're not having fun it's a job yeah that's um you know i think a lot of that's under celebrated there was a race in orlando a couple years ago it was an import event and there were so many honda civics that came in on dollies and and that was it i was like these guys are going to have some fun this weekend you know it's not a bunch of stacker trailers and you know, half million dollar cars with show car paint jobs. Like there were just guys out there, families with barbecue grills, kids running around, you know, like just hunting for an ounce of glory in this low buck event. Like that's, that's, I think a lot of stuff that's uh, under celebrated because it doesn't have that, um, that, uh, that Instagram um, clout, you know, the, the million dollar car thing. The dominant male uh, posturing thing we talked about. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's, uh, they don't teach you about that when you're a kid. Like when you, some guy goes 399, he's so mad, he smashes parts in his trailer and, you know, right. and you're like, all right, dude, yeah, 399 in the eighth is awful and you survived. Terrible <laughs> weekend. Terrible. That's well, it's why hard. I like, like, oh, no, go ahead. I will talk to you. Too look much. At, uh, when you look at how it works, like if you've, if you've gone a 10 second quarter mile or an 11 second quarter mile or an eight second quarter mile or a six second quarter mile, like if, if you and I have done this accomplishment at different tracks, at different times of our lives, we don't get together and say like, dude, how did that feel? You know, like the first time you, you pull the front end off of the ground on a car or, or the first time you, um, you look at a time slip and it's, you know, a nine second time slip or a 10 second time slip. Like we don't meet and celebrate that moment. We meet and be like, I mean, well, I went faster than you and, and, you know, and I'm still going fast. Like, like that's just the male thing that, that, that part may stick around for a long time, but we should spend more time celebrating the whole car thing in general because it's super fun. No, yeah, I agree with that. And one thing that drives me nuts, which is kind of a line between these two. You can let me know if I'm way off base. Uh, people do the low boost, lifted at the 800 foot. They're understating what yeah. they're doing. 
So then yeah. pe people are always doing that. Like I, I hate that. Like some literally again, a guy goes three ninety, and he's like, "Oh, we have this is my buddy Cameron." And I say, "Way more left in it. Way we have so much more left." Right. I'm like, "Well, then go three right. zero. Why are you screwing around? Go three zero yeah. and show right. us." Well, you know, right. I get wound up about that, but I'm t I'm so tired of hearing. Like your car is super fast, and what do you have a tenth in it before you smash it to bits and you know it? St right. Stop. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's just men stuff. Like we, you know, Geo has taught me a lot because Geo's kind of a, you know, he's he's a, he's just a kind of a loud personality, <laughs> wants to go fast kind of stuff, and he, and and we we joke a lot about um, you know, he still is convinced that I. I have these like super soft tune-ups in my hand and I'm just like holding out on this. And I'm like, bro, it's, it, you know, it goes sixes in the quarter mile. Like, what do you want from me? You know, he's like, yeah, but we used to have 250 horsepower with the nitrous on it. Now you're not using any nitrous. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still going sixes. Like, can we just enjoy the, the thing? And he's, you know, he's just, he wants to go faster, 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 you know? So it's a good, the one thing that's really awesome about real street is there's so many, different characters here that um, it really creates an incredible balance, you know? Yeah. That's, I always laugh when I go back and I think about your, you made a, you made a comment on Instagram or something and you're like, sometimes you have to release your inner geo. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it, it, you know, it, it, um, it works for me because I, uh, part of having like the responsibility of um, adulthood, you know, you get married, you have kids, you got, you got, you know, uh, this whole mess of what happens if you mess, make a mistake on the road and you end up in a lawsuit, you know, or, or you make a mistake, you just make a mistake and you get hung on the internet for making a mistake. You know what I mean? So um, most of the stuff that I do for enjoyment with cars, I'm just real quiet about it unless it's at a, a sanction in event, you know, I, I, I had, you know, I've kind of had like a closet motorcycle habit for quite some time and, and I can go do dumb stuff on the motorcycle and no one knows, you know, but, um, but that's the inner geo type thing, you know, and, uh, it's a good, it's a good time. You know, I used to live on near this really nice piece of concrete where I could go make rips in my car and, and it was fun. And then we moved to like this construction ridden zone where you could drive the car, but you, there's nowhere to make rips, you know, like it's not, the, it's not in the uh, traffic path. So I think that's calmed me down too. Like when I, when I went to Bon, you know, I, I had to race the, um, I had to make a pass in the white car a while back because Gio was, was something happened. He couldn't run the car. So I ran the car and uh, you know, that was, pretty intense when you don't race anything for a while and you get into a six second car, you know, and then the Bonneville stuff is a real interesting test of um, what you got. But the difference between the Bonneville guys and what's going on with most people is the Bonneville guys will tell you with joy in their eyes that they went 250 miles an hour with the rods out and, <laughs> and they'll say with the rods out and they say it like, like it's this, prize they won because it was probably on fire too you know <laughs> and and but those guys you know the people out there they're done trying to be somebody they don't they don't care who you what you think about them or what 
you know, what the internet thinks about them. They're just out there having a good time. So that, that group of people, I think really breaks the mold compared to what we're used to in, in the soft tunes and conservative boost and all that, all that stuff people talk about. Well, that's interesting to hear. I didn't, I've never been to like a land speed or any type of like half mile event. So it's cool to hear that they are enthusiastic about it, no matter what, instead of like drag race people who are, that's why I don't go to the track. I go to the track like once a year, if that, and uh it is it's everyone's miserable in my opinion everyone has like 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 we were talking about quarter million dollar tow rig and then they're mad about a tenth and then something breaks and then you know i don't know well i think you uh you know if you get too focused on something you get lost in it you know so those guys maybe the best thing for them to do is then blow their stuff up not be able to afford to fix it and go build a 500 horsepower g body to do rolling burnouts in you know, because there's a lot of joy to be had in just something that is a lot of fun to beat on. It doesn't break. It's so rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were some, uh, we'll move on again. Uh, well, that's a good one. That would be, uh, there's a lot. Oh, uh, my buddy Felix says two JZ and six R 80 E. Is it awesome? I don't, is that a project you did? I don't actually know. Um, so it's a project that I've, uh, kind of dipped my toes into. And one of the obstacles with the Jay-Z is it really is, um, a gutless engine off a of boost. And you can try to do things to it with artificially small turbos and getting its, you know, spool valves and all this nonsense. But the character of the engine is the character of the engine. And if you put a power glide or a TH400 behind one, it it will perform at a racetrack, but it's not much fun to drive on the street. And the 6R80 is, uh, you know, it's six forward gears. So you can have this um, really neat set of ratios available to an engine that needs a, a neat set of ratios. You know, the factory six-speed Supra, you know, if you don't know, the fifth gear was the one-to-one gear. Hmm. So you had five raceable gears instead of four. Right. So that 6R80 is a really neat piece. Um, uh, a buddy of mine at Motec, uh, his name is Vit, and he's a really high-level wizard. Um, he's got a couple years under his belt now with the 6R80 thing, and and I just literally put my toes in the water, and I'm like, it's pretty heavy because you have to um, – it's an OEM level. Now they've taken the Motec box, which is this thing you run an engine with, and they've converted it to a thing that runs a transmission that also runs an engine. I mean, there's far more tables in that, uh, in that trans, um, control than I was ready for. So it's going to have to be something that I, I put on a car that I have access to daily and I just work on it because it's, um, it's not a simple control unit of uh, on off switches like a, uh, earlier trans would be or ADE or something with uh, pneumatic actuated. Is it like a is this is the Ford one like a Chevy six L eighty six L ninety where it's mechatronic and if it's unhappy it just throws neutral and flares. Yeah, and yeah it's a pulse width based control and you have to empty empty passages and fill passages in time for a shift. And you have to do big torque management or you because it has no like powerful 
like it's not like an ADE or a TH400. It just doesn't stuff the gear. It'll ruin it. So right. you have to pull, and when it's fully applied, uh, you can yep. put the timing back in, and you have to have yeah. that event. Yeah. So to answer the question, yes, it's super badass. Uh, there's a ton of potential there. I think it's going to be a um, a really, really great option for a lot of people. And because it will be paired with a product like the Motec, they're going to end up with all those features that that thing already has and good um, power management with the um, drive-by-wire that comes right along with it. So, you know, when you start getting these high-horsepower turbo cars that are two-wheel drive, um, and you really want good functionality out of the traction control, being able to move the throttle is um, is pretty handy because you can leave the thing some room to to grow up. You know, it's not you know if you're racing on like a drive shaft curve system where the car can only go as fast as the fastest curve, that's one approach. But when you have an, uh, a closed loop system that says, "I just want to target six percent slip." I'll do all these things over here to make that happen. And the driver is just in there having a good time. You pair that with good ratios like that 6R80, it's a lot of fun for a street car. My buddy Chris, uh, great troll holio, he says, imagine a 10R ADE behind a 2JZ. You know, I... um, Or maybe two gears, too many gears for high horsepower, I feel like sometimes... But, uh, yeah, you got to stack all those shifts. Like I, I think five forward gears and a good overdrive is a really neat place to be with that engine. Now in the six R80, the first gear ratio is super deep, but you can launch it in second, which is like a, because a 236. So, you know, first gear is your, you know, your stoplight daily driven, just knock the car in motion type gear. But if you're racing, you can launch it in second, which I think is really a neat feature with a trans brake, you know. Because first is too short, yeah. I think yeah, first you'll just upset the car. It's just and then having to make that abrupt shift at 15 miles an hour when the gear maxes right. out. So right. I I know well a G8. I had a G8 and it had like 292 rear gears, like a 26 inch tire, and I think 408 is the first gear ratio. It's like a four. Yeah. It's like a 390 or something. But yeah, what do you yeah, think? I think the six R is 420 something. Is the first gear. It's super deep. Yeah. But most of those, like, if you look at, like, a modern DCT car and most modern transmissions, that's that's all they're doing. Because if you if you think about the um, the slipping that occurs in a converter car, a factory-geared converter car, when you just initialize motion of the vehicle, that's just energy lost, right? So if you can put a super deep first in it, knock the thing in motion, give it another gear, you're using less energy, you know, to get it in motion. You're losing less energy from the engine to the tire versus mowing through that converter. And you would you know, assume, like, well, that's the nice thing about like those factory sized, like an R8 or something like that. And a dual clutch, like uh, you can better utilize that. But yeah, the other thing I wanted to bring up about transmissions, funny enough is I've heard that those, what is it? A BMW M4 seven speed dual clutch is actually very affordable. And then it a, is. a system like Motec probably does it too. But I've heard of one called Max ECU that also controls it. So yep. part of me has wanted to do like something dumb like a Fairmont with like a 434-inch LS3-based engine and the dual-clutch 7-speed. Yeah. And then gear it exactly for a quarter-mile pass. And just hear it shift six times would be ridiculous right. and go like a 920 with a 500-horsepower to the tire. No, you know, that... 
um, that puts the conversation in a couple directions, but you have to keep in mind that the dual clutch trans does not want to slip like a converter. Hmm. So, so the reason the dual clutch trans have those really deep first gears, if you've ever watched a GTR drag race, it just like the first gear is like the most abusive thing ever. Just bounce. And that's all well, the kid, they can't, they can't slip the clutch. And then the other thing to your, you know, six forward gears and a quarter mile passes, that window that you're having the engine operate in is way easier on parts than having a bunch of pull down on a gear shift. You know, like you have to pry so many ideas out of people's hands. Like, there are people that still love power glides. Well, when you go from first gear to second gear in a power glide and you're making any real steam, like you have the load from a turbocharger, that engine is not terribly happy when it's just, when the engine speed line is horizontal and you just got that thing held down and you probably have too much timing in it. Like it's hard on stuff. Whereas if you have a bunch of forward gears, the engine's um, accelerating away from what, the the steady state load that would kill it. I call it you know, steady ben. state load is a different a Rod different ben city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. That's what we've learned to do with the stock bottom end LS cars is keep them like over sixty one hundred all the time. Yeah. If your RPM drop is too high, just rev it higher. Whatever, like do whatever you got to do to not have a ton of power or load below fifty five hundred, and it'll it'll live through a lot. Yeah, time under load is a real deal killer. And then, uh, oh, here's this one's good too. Uh, what's your top five tips learned on Drag Week that you can share for people preparing their cars? Um, I think the most important thing is sleep, <laughs> because if you uh, if you don't rest well and you're a pretty domesticated person that doesn't live around the corks of hot rods and you go out there and try to do drag week and you get yourself into a mistake that then gives way to a car accident or an injury like you've you've lost all hope right so you have to you have to be able to keep reasonable um hours where you're going to spin out and um and the second thing I would say to really stop and slow down and realize that it's probably been a while that since you've been on such a neat adventure like drag week where you're just free from everything for a week and you're just driving around in the car with your buddy, like that's, that's worth not getting caught up in, uh, you know, the ego comparison of who's faster than what argument. Um, uh, Plan your meals well and have decent food available so you're not eating out of a gas station all week. The car stuff is pretty simple. I mean, you're, you know, depending on the car, you know, um, know when to move on to the next track. If you make a decent run and you could stick around for three more hours and make a better run, you may be better off just moving on with that decent run because you don't know if that, if staying three hours later is going to end you cleaning armadillo out of the bottom of your car at 2 a.m. because that's what time you were driving through that area, you know, so it, it's, it's a neat gamble. Um, and the fifth thing, uh, if that wasn't just really, um, try to manage the heat the best you can, you know, a lot of those cars drive around with their hood off. Like that's a pretty easy mod to, to get heat out of the compartment. 
So, you know, make your peace with it. Don't pick on people that are driving around with their hoods off because the way that the OEM sheds heat out of a compartment is, um, is designed for a lot of OEM components. And when you put a bunch of exposed turbo tubing in all these things in this real estate that wasn't uh turbocharged from the factory, you're going to have to manage heat. You know, that's a serious concern. And taking the hood off is like just a, just a, a really easy way to get a lot of that heat out of the compartment. It reminds me, I do data center work, so it's BTUs in and BTUs out. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and most of it, unfortunately for a piston engine, the, the, the heat uh, doesn't go to the rotator. It goes to the cooling system and it goes to the exhaust system and it leaks into the engine compartment. Like the heat is so much heat is lost. So much energy is lost. Now there's now after a while of serious questions, I like to do these. These not so serious ones to to get away from my our brains getting exhausted over answering. So this one, right. this one's funny. Uh, thick or thin crust pizza? It's got to be thin. When you know what goes into that thick crust pizza and how hard it is to get it back out of your body, whether <laughs> whether it's on your belly or on your back fat, like I'm thin crust. And then I mean that's a that's a the drag week stuff was really interesting because it's nothing I would have uh, thought of or any, but I mean, you have to sleep to function correctly or else you'll make mistakes on the car and driving. And then like you said, that happens where people are trying, they think it's a one day event. And if you, in my opinion at drag week, if you survive long enough, 60, 80% of the people have dropped out because of, like you said, not sleeping, not eating, beating the car up too much. So if you can just get to the end, because I think a lot of people go there and try to come out swinging really hard and they don't make it a day or two. And my, my buddy Cameron and I have always wanted to do it. And one day we will, and we're going to take his stock daily driver crown Vic. That's, that's a fine idea. And we're just going to, like I said, like, I don't have anything to prove. So we're just going to go and sit in our AC and eat at a nice place and, Right. sleep and and we're gonna be yep. like oh man we got a 17-0 average how'd you guys do no that um you know w- when Jew and i went for the first time he i realized um about by the end of the first day that he wasn't gonna let me drive he was driving drag week and i, I think i asked him like on the second day i'm like so are we gonna trade off or are you just driving and he because you know you you spend enough time around someone, they don't have to say much for you to hear them, you know? And he was like, I'm going to do this whole thing. And I was like, you go boy, you know, like, and he did it. He did, you know, he did the whole thing with a smile. The next drag week I think was tougher on us because we had, uh, we fell, we fell behind. And he, I think on the last day, I think he was really ready for some sleep, you know, cause you're, you're in this car. That's, um, it's not the comfiest car and you're, you're in 7 a.m. traffic trying to get to the track and you hadn't slept and the road is just like gross, you know, just, just a worn out road, just worst case scenario type stuff. And he wasn't having much fun that morning, you know, so it, it, it's definitely a neat event and it will definitely test. Uh, don't bring any friends with short fuses because it's not a place for people with short fuses, you know, cause you could just get spun out. Everybody needs patience. Uh, 
So this one's a good one because this this is like our first conversation. I think this is a good lead in and something that I uh, really appreciate you guys putting videos up. But it says, uh, are you going to keep seeking your records at Bonneville Salt Flats? If so, what's your next Salt Flats project? And um, Yeah. Oh, he like. says, uh, would you ever, Matt, meaning me, consider building and running something out there? I'd love to see a sloppy salt flat build. Uh, I could probably talk about Bonneville for an hour. Huh. Well, is, we got, uh, we got, it's all up to you when you want to quit. We've had some. Well, I, I, uh, I don't have a real short version of how to explain Bonneville to someone, but um, it is a, if you're into cars and you are into like the community that cars bring, Bonneville is um, just incredible. You know, like I've, uh, I went, you know, six second quarter mile and it was, I know I, I can go right through it in my head exactly how it felt. And I don't necessarily want to do it again. Um, but Bonneville is a different thing. It's, uh, it's just like, it's a whole week of incredible, awesome, you know, getting to drive one of those cars and getting to do that. It, you know, like this year, next week, next Friday, I go back out there and there's a chance that if everything goes well, I'm, I'm going to go well over 300 miles an hour. And, um, and when I went last year, you know, there was this whole mile uh, over 260 miles an hour and it's a different, um, it's a different space, you know, like your brain s sees that event differently after you've experienced something like that, you know, like if you knew how to wheelie a motorcycle, I could, like, you know, we could, we could talk about what it feels like to be at the balance point where you're, the motorcycle is not accelerating. It's just riding a wheelie and it's, it's, it's some kind of magic, you know, Bonneville is, some kind of magic. It's really a neat place. I highly recommend it. It would definitely be cool to uh, check it out. I don't think my wife would let me floor a car for that long at any, at that speed, but uh, it would be cool to do. I always thought about doing uh, doing like a half mile event or something on a bike because I've had like nitrous boozes and stuff like that, and I'm like it would be cool to just go to one of those and progressively spray like a 200 shot or something. I think that the half mile stuff is a, uh, I've done that also. It, it's a neat drag race. Um, but most of the venues are fairly dangerous. Hmm. Whereas if you go to Bonneville and you're in a car, like the car that I, I drove last year was this roadster and it could spin. And when it spins, it just spins. I mean, you could be spinning for this cartoonish amount of time before the car will come to a stop. You know, I mean, like, one of the guys uh, out there is like, he's been through the lights. Greg's been through the lights over 200 miles an hour backwards. Huh. You know, it's like, it's got all the things that you need without the danger that is appearing. Now, there are cars out there, like the car that I'm going to get to drive um, this coming speed week, it's a, a streamliner. And a, a streamliner can uh, barrel roll and you'll get your eggs scrambled and you can get killed, but, you know pretty easy, but a, a car that won't get off the ground and will just spin, it's way safer than some half mile stuff. Hmm. I mean, I would feel, you know, 
the stuff that I did in my Toyota half mile, now that I um, have experienced Bonneville, I, I don't think I'd ever take my car to a half mile event again because it's just a lot of risk because you're not in a, you're not in a, uh, a place safe enough to really crash. You'll always hit. There's always something. I understand what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could argue, you know, guys that want to go 200 in the quarter mile, like, yeah, it's, it's pretty hairy. You know, you start to respect the guys that went eighth mile years ago because eighth mile, you don't have all that time under load and, you know, after the eighth mile. So it's easier on parts, but, but, you know, going over 200 miles an hour in the quarter is, it's pretty risky, you know, like if you got the money to do it, then chances are you got something to lose. If you got something to lose, you start doing the math on, you know, how, how safe is this compared to that? And I think Bonneville is the main event because Bonneville is incredibly safe in that aspect, but the, um, the perceived danger is still there. So you still get a hell of a rush. No, that makes sense that you just like slide. I remember watching a video where someone, uh, you know, breaks something on uh, one of those cars, and it's just you know, there's that sh- noise for forever because uh, yep. salt has like no friction. I th- people say that's always the challenge driving on it. It's always like you said, a balance point on a wheelie. It, it, there's like a float that's happening. Yeah. Am I on the ground? Am I not? Yeah. Is this no, it's uh, it's like imagine that it you know, well over 200 miles an hour. Imagine that balance point sensation over 200 miles an hour. It is, it's nirvana. I mean, your brain is just like there. It's good. That's awesome. Yeah. That's what, and then I was going to say to people like, uh, the reason you had to do this Saturday or like the 20, I don't know, much farther is you're like, oh, I'm going to Bonneville. I'm like, oh, I was going to ask that too. When are you going to get that car back out? No, it's, uh, it's ready. The guys, um, there's this just incredible group of guys out in Arizona that, you know, they're, they're a whole team, you know, it's this white goose bar team of guys and I, I just mail them engines. So I built engines for the Streamliner, which is a 2JZ and the Roadster, which is a 2JZ. And we have, um, some like, uh, pretty neat prototype parts that we're going to test this year for cooling, which I'm really excited about. Um, that, you know, we, we did here in Orlando and they're, you know, they're going to be put to the test on, cause the streamliner needs five miles. The roadster, you could get it done in four miles. And there's even some roadsters out there that are like blown alcohol dragsters. Like they'll get it done in three miles because they, they'll run out of gas if they go any further, you know, but the streamliner is going to be five miles of heat. And, uh, for that, it'll be a decent amount of work on the cooling system to get the engine to survive that. People spamming the chat with uh, hate speech. I see that 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 guy may need to meet people in real life. Yeah, I. Uh, so that's what's uh, taking up my. Oh my god, how many people are there? Can my mods please help me out here? <laughs> <laughs> I that's can't awesome. do this the whole time and ask you questions. Uh, oh man. Whew. Anyway, um, uh, moving on. Huh. So there were some 2J ones that are pretty cool. Okay, yeah, there's the... Oh, here, let me... Uh, it's moving now. 
Oh my god. I'll add some more. It's hard to tell. I have it so wide, it's hard to tell. Uh, I have to sh shorten it back up. Oh boy. Here we go. Here's a Reaper. Here's Mark. We'll just throw a bunch of people in here. Anyway. Moving on. Uh, so 2J. I know nothing about 2Js. It's said that they are the import equivalent to the LS. What's the down and dirty sloppy style uh, 1J, 1.5J, or 2JZ setup that can be done relatively cheap? 500 wheel and burnout straight six noises and pop the hood memes are the goals. Please speak the transmission setup for this. Um, 500 is really easy. I would, uh, I would probably say, um, I would get a 1JZ before an NA2JZ. Um, the 1JZ is a really neat engine and it sounds really, really cool because it's got a tiny stroke in it. Hmm. Um, the 2JZ, you know, right now with what's happened in the past year with the price of used auto parts, spend five or six thousand bucks on a JDM JZ engine, a complete twin turbo engine, that's that's a tall order. You know, we just did a um a thing with Roadkill for their uh death metal car. We did a two J Z swap with them. Well I just had to do the fuel injection stuff. Um and it it spit out of uh, a good amount of power without a lot of work. Uh, but the rods are tiny. So I think that you have you have to really be careful with the rods on an NA2J. But let's say you have a twin turbo 2JZ engine and you put cams in it, a decent turbocharger, it'll live a really nice life um, over 800 wheel horsepower, you know, that like 800, 850 range. If you just, you know, use ethanol and don't be a, a you know, don't mess up with timing. Timing's not your friend. You know, it, it, that's a really easy 800 horsepower engine to live with. And I would argue, um, I would argue that it, that would be my first choice. Be to use the 2J. Um, if the budget won't support it and you've got access to a 1JZ, um, I like the VVTI. It's a nice engine, but yeah, they're, 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 they're just staple engines. They, they don't have great airflow. Um, but turbochargers fix that, right? <laughs> and the, they, their inline sixes, they're not trying to shake themselves apart. And, um, you know, it's cast iron block. It's, it's, it's really a, it's really a nice engine. It's got a, um, a huge oil pump pickup tube. Like you know, it doesn't hold a lot of oil. So at some point you have to acknowledge that, but not until you get into turbochargers that really want to make power past 8,500 RPM. So for most common people and common size turbochargers, it's, it's hard to beat, you know, I would say pre COVID prices, I'd go toe to toe with any like junkyard LS build versus a stock JZ build. And we could have some really fun racing that way. Yeah. I feel like they're, they're just as good of a tank. A lot of those, if you're not screwing yourself on complexity or other things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was first introduced to the TJ, um, Orlando had very few dinos in town. And I think it was either two or three dynos. And this, these other guys would come use the dyno to run these two JZ engines on. And they really didn't know what they were doing. 
they were just figuring it out, you know, but the, 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 they would shake those engines so hard that me being a push rod Mustang guy, like you could never get away with that stuff on a Mustang it would just break, you know, and it just like opened my eyes to how, just how tough is that engine? Because they would come abuse the engine on the dyno and, and drive out of there. You know, they, they never broke one on the dyno and it would have these terrible cuts and just, you know, rattling it and this and that, but they were just really tough engines versus the, the Mustang engine would just break, you know, it just wouldn't tolerate it, you know? So they are extremely tough engines. If you just have a reasonable approach to them. And some mechanical sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. Treat it like you're going to have to pay to fix it. That's a good way to say it. Uh, a good one here is, uh, how did real street start and where did the name come? You know, everything from the ground up. So, I mean, I remember you saying you worked with a guy with car stuff, but how did you be like, I'm going to open a shop and I'm going to do this? Oh, uh, it was kind of just a series of events. Um, the, the guy that I worked with, he started to kind of change his operating procedure and we just were no longer um, able to mesh well. You know, it was like an uncomfortable pair of shoes. Hmm. And I had, uh, I had, um, I knew the other players in the area, and I knew that that wouldn't really work for me long term. So uh, the guy that I started racing, the Mustang that I still have with, um, John, he he really was a huge motivation in all of it. Cause he said like one day he said, you know, I've started the LLC. My mom's going to help do the accounting, like quit your job. It's time to do this. You know, and that was really the push to go into doing it. And I, um, I had a house that I had bought when I was a kid. I was like 21 and got this house. So there was some equity in it. So I pulled the equity out and just kind of started hitting my head up against the wall, you know, for the next few years. And then, uh, how did the name Real Street happen? Because my last name is Mar, and it's pronounced Mar, but it sure looks like meager. Meager performance would have been not acceptable. Ah. There would have probably been a ton of jokes. So the car, the Mustang that really like drug me out into the country and like showed me that what I thought was the right way to do things was maybe the right way to do things, but there was many other ways to do things bigger and get me involved with these racers and get me learning and get me wanting to really progress into more. Um, that class was called real street and it was an NMRA class where you could have like this supercharger and this fuel and that clutch and that engine and that camshaft. It was a very specific class where you had to have like a stock cam and a hundred octane and, uh, you know, a stock computer with a chip, uh, or like an extender, like, you know, these prehistoric tools and the cars would, would go, when I got involved in it, the cars would go tens, you know, and then they went nines. And, uh, that was pretty much the, what gave way is just driving around the country racing this Mustang and, um, and really meeting a whole different part of car culture rather than being stuck in a workshop where you, you know, you, you wash your hands and you go up front to talk to a customer because he's picking his car up. Like that's one car culture experience versus going out and, and racing with people and, and getting to see, um, 
getting to meet the guys that will mislead you or getting to meet the guys that will help you. And, and, you know, just kind of just created a big shift in my life. So that's real street performance was because that, uh, my last name for one in the class was just like such a neat life changing thing for me. I never knew that's how to say your last name. So it's Mar. Yeah. Yeah. It's some old Irish deal. And, uh, the only people that I meet that pronounce it right are people that happen to know someone that had the same last name because it's, if you go in some Irish coffee cup shop, it's on, it's in there, you know, but you don't, you don't see it often. And the way they spelled it is kind of, uh, you know, All jambalaya. Yeah. Uh, so it's funny. People are saying like, you know, despite all of, I can we all agree that the 302 and a Fox sounds the best despite being inferior in all other ways? And I agree. The, the five liter, if I think you are a little, uh, brand loyal, if you can't admit how good those old 302s sound. Yeah. I mean, if you had a, a motorsport letter camshaft and some Flowmasters, it's a good sounding car. I, you know, I still have one. I, my, Mustang is a pushrod engine car and it's going to stay a pushrod engine car. And, uh, a lot of it is the sound because that, um, that's such a big part of the vehicle's character that if you have a car that just sounds kind of crappy, you know, or, or, you know, crappy, that's a big part of it. So I just, I, I, I do agree that those, those engines have a nice tone to them for sure. And then we might as well go right in. One of the questions was, what are you doing? I've seen videos on that too. What are you doing with the Mustang now or what's the plan or whatever? So the Mustang is going to do donuts behind the shop before the year ends. That's the plan. That's the goal. Um, it, uh, it's going to be, um, it's back here at the shop. It was up in North Carolina getting wired. It's really, really nice now. And, um, and a lot of the stuff that I did when I was a kid, because I didn't know better has been fixed and it's, it's going to be badass. It's a 381 inch, um, small block Ford with uh Kinsler stacked injection that uh, my, my friend Job just like, you know, Job, these two long-term friends, Job and Jason, they kind of like gave me this whole thing top to bottom and it made 675 to the tire NA. And it sounds super righteous. So that's in that car. It's going to have that same um, dog box five speed that just gets stuffed and it just transmission just shifts wonderful. And I'm going to get coffee in it and go to the track and it should go low nines. And, you know, Imagine that'll be that. it. Ice cream and burnouts is your goal for that thing. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, my main goal is to, uh, you know, you get like middle age, like all these things change and, I have friends that I, w- I really just want them to make a pass in the car because they had to stop playing with cars 20 years ago because their lives changed, you know? So there's a handful of people that uh, are definitely going to get to make a pass in that car. And it is a wonderful experience. I think it's really, really fun to drive. Uh, what was I going to add something to that, but it doesn't matter because I talk too much. Uh, Oh, this is interesting. What's the fastest you've gone on water? Man, not fast. 
I uh, like regular boats, so that there's nothing yeah. worth noting. Yeah, um, my childhood was full of bad boating experiences. So like, it was there was a number of times where I was probably crying at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday night because the boat was broken on the river and there's no one around to tow you back and. Mm. You know, like boating wasn't fun for me as a kid. And then as a teenager, my buddy's dad had power boats, but he would run them up on sandbars at full speed. Um, so <laughs> I, I would say, you know, uh, I, I exited a bow rider and dislocated my shoulder on the way out when that guy drove it up on a sandbar. Like I, I don't have a lot of luck in boats, but I, I, um, I've been like maybe 70 miles an hour or something on a jet ski, a modern jet ski. And then I'm, um, I've, I've begged Mike Finnegan to give me a ride in his, uh, game over boat. It's like a 700 inch twin turbo thing. Hemi. Yeah. And I'm going to 94s or whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, 80, uh, 86, 85 or 83, 85. Cause it comes on like that. Um, I'm going to go for a ride in that thing just because I want to, uh, I want to have that memory in my head, but I think it's incredibly dangerous. Those boats are. Something else. Uh, go up or down here between serious ones. Oh, this is... Uh, should we do serious or not serious? Or you want? You have no preference at this point. Uh, nah. I want to hear his thoughts on a new engine slash rebuild break-in procedure and if he knows any actual science or testing behind common procedures like holding a flat tap at cam at 2000 for 20 minutes or seating new rings because there's seemingly no literature. And I'll add that a lot of those people have no clue and modern engines don't care and blah, blah, blah. Well, um, so if we want to, if we want to be on each side of the argument, I can do it pretty well. Yes. If you have a lot of money and your stuff is pretty right, then stuff it together and beat on it. You know, like, I, I was at the Ducati factory and they, they put the engine together. They run it with electric motor. If the, if the engine, if the engine turns well, they dyno it, you know, like there's that camp. And then there's the camp of, um, people that understand that if you've ever bricked an old car and wanted to blow it up and you just brick the gas pedal and crack open a beer, it's pretty boring after a while because they don't blow up easy because everything is so familiar. You have this uh, set of dancing partners that have been dancing together for 200,000 miles and, and nothing touches and, and, and everything is really familiar. And I would say on that side of the argument, you're like, okay, what does it hurt you to break an engine? in? Because I've taken apart, I've put engines together and um, like the engines for the Bonneville car, they don't get, broken in we we make an easy pass at you know five or six thousand rpm and with the with the geo's race car you know it, it goes to the track and it it goes to six i can tell you that the pan back and and whatnot looks different on the second pass you know <laughs> like the 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 camp that says that a modern ring set is seated before you ever start the engine because you've turned it over enough i think that that um that is really dependent on bore size and um, and how round the bores are because the bigger the bore, the harder it is to be around, and then the less likely the ring is perfectly concentric to the bore. So that would loan itself to more break-in period. 
versus a engine that has um, a very stable architecture and very good shape to it, well, that engine's going to not be as as needy when it comes to break-in. So, you know, you could do it either way, but most engines die shortly. Most new engines die shortly after they were fired up. You know, if you've done something wrong, it shows itself relatively quickly. So my argument would be like, well, give it some time. You know, like when, when real street got started, I was building Subaru engines, uh, as a, that was my primary source of income. Well, you're a masochist. <laughs> well, I had a, uh, I had a really good track record because I had grown up working on small block Fords that are fairly sensitive castings, you know, so you get into that Subaru engine where every time you put the case together, it's a little different in the speed that you move the wrench and like everything matters to make this really strange little engine live at, you know, Back then it was only 400 horsepower or whatever, but, um, I would always put them together. I'd drive them a hundred miles and then I'd put them on the dyno. I wouldn't just go right to the dyno with them because they need a familiarization period. Hmm. So, so would you say that the whole engine needs that, uh, familiarizing or would you say that mostly it's rings or mostly, cause I feel like if one of these cars, I've done a bunch where someone unloads it on the trailer and it has oil pressure issues and two hits. So I would well, say most failures are bearing or something wrong immediately. Right. But would, would that, um, well, okay. So you can't fix bad work, you know? So, so we have to move past bad work, but, um, when you, when you really get to looking closely at engine parts and um, you really want the most out of the engine, I mean, a little bit of break-in period is not going to hurt you. Hmm. You know, if you give the thing a hundred miles or a couple hundred miles, I mean, like pick a high level engine, you know, like there's a reason why the, you know, all those German cars are pretty high level engines. Well, they they're protecting an investment. You know, they want the car or the motorcycle to perform extremely well through warranty. So they, they prescribe a break-in period, you know, and if you get into, um, you know, pick a, pick a flat topic cam on a modern, on a modern Japanese engine, like a Jay-Z, how many people don't buy lifters? So they have a new cam on a used lifter. Well, if you start that thing up and you run it at 1500 or 2000 RPM for a while and give it a little bit of time to find its new home, on, you know, 24 used lifters, like, that's a pretty good idea, man. Like, I would give it that time because it'll save you, it'll save you money. If you have roller lifters, obviously it's quite a bit different, but you have to, um, you have to understand what the friction surfaces in the engine are like. And then maybe, maybe that's your patient and each patient gets a different prescription. Because if you treat them in these huge bulk statements of breaking an engine in is smart, or breaking an engine in is dumb. Like, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of middle ground and a lot of engines are different from one another. And some of them just need break-in, you know, like we're, we're pretty bratty to be so anti-break-in when you consider what our, what our, um, our ancestors in the industry, the guys back in the fifties, their level of machine work, their level of clearances and, and how bad things were back then they had to let stuff break in because it was so gross that it just, it wouldn't live without it. You know what I mean? So I, I guess, you know, it depends on the engine, but I, I think that it, it's, uh, it's safe for your wallet either way. 
And the other thing is most people put cars together. If they're putting cars together at home and it's a new engine and they're putting that engine in the car. So they've got all this risk They're It's their first build or, and they're, 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 they've put all these weekends into it, the whole thing, right? And the things that they've left loose or forgot to do or forgot to come back on, like, wouldn't you rather find those small mistakes while you're just out putzing around, you know? Because when you, when you, when you're putting everything to the test right out of the gate, if everything is right, it will take it, you know, like, like there's a lot of cars that that's how they're raced and they win races that way. But if you, if you are, um, doing this stuff at home and you're, and you're not super experienced with it, like, eh, give yourself a little room, you know, what's the harm? Yeah, it makes sense. I, uh, I agree with like, it makes some people nervous or their luck is bad without it. And then, obviously, depending on what you're building, it's situational. Uh, like a lot of the stuff I do, like uh, one of my one of my uh, quotes from you that I like the most is in one video assembling things. You say "new" means never ever worked, and that's not good or bad. So I, I say that phrase to people all the time. I'm like, it just it has no history. So when I take apart a quarter million mile LS, I'm like. There's a reason it got here and I shouldn't mess with the formula because right. it has made it this whole way. So there's like tiny things that I do, but mostly let it go. Cause like you said, it, it's familiar. It has run. So I feel like people are doing themselves a disservice by re-ringing or redoing bearings or redoing whatever. Oh, yeah. Don't touch yeah. it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. It has worn in for 20 years. And right. I'm like, don't, just don't even do it. Uh, and I yeah. think, in my experience, you're better off not doing anything. So, uh, there was a good one there too. Uh, break-in oil as part of that break-in. Do you use a separate, because people talk about that like high zinc, you know what I'm talking about? I've heard a little bit about oil in the past couple months. And uh, well, zinc actually, is kind of a... Um, you guys just did a video on it. I only got halfway yeah. through it. Yeah, that was a super neat trip because we um, we got to learn from these people that are um, they really have a lot of pride in their work. Like they're really trying to be the best at their work. And when you deal with companies that are trying to be the best at their work, you you have a good result, you know. And um, the the zinc thing is kind of a generic thing that's been around for a long time, but it's not the end all be all best case scenario. You know, zinc got stripped out of oil because of catalytic converter life. So there are alternatives to zinc that work as good or better in some circumstances, but they're expensive. Hmm. So when you get into like uh, your Kia, you know, you could put regular motor oil on that thing. It's just change the oil, please. And it'll last its whole life term with any kind of motor oil, you know. And uh, when you get into the racing oil stuff, I think it is, um, it's worth having the conversation. You know, people can, people can look at, uh, there's a couple things that get commonly thrown around shaft play on a turbo and cross hatch on a cylinder. And people will shake the turbo and assume something's wrong, or they'll look at the bore and assume something's right. I mean, you have no idea how deep the valleys are in that hone finish, how much oil can be retained to seal and lubricate the cylinder and is the fuel you're using trying to wash that oil off. But most of us just say, Oh, it's, 
I got a good crosshatch, you know, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's super crude and you see it when you start, when you get, um, the ability to have pan back in an engine and start to understand how the engine seals and when it stops sealing, I mean, that, that really changes my argument for whether or not, uh, good oil is worth it or not. Like the break-in oils, they're just less slippery because you want that ring to come in as quick as possible. Because if you've taken a car and put a, um, a aggressive faced clutch in a car, right? A segment, segmented puck clutch and you drive it for 500 miles, normal driving, and you take the clutch back out and you look at it. Well, how much of that clutch has actually touched the flywheel and pressure plate? You know, a lot of it is still yet to make contact with those surfaces because the familiarization period hasn't gone on. You know, so when you get into sealing rings, um, I guess the neat thing about that break-in oil is if the hone is done well and you use that break-in oil, you'll just make for a better engine. Now, if you're going to unplug the wastegate and pray that it's going to live, then don't waste your money on break-in oil. You know what I mean? But if you're trying to do it something pretty right, it's just another thing that you can do that will add to it. And then another oil question from Joe Simpson. He's a guy I've had on the show before. He's super intelligent, real-life tuner. Uh, he says, the question I get all the time is people that swear by whatever oil and why is it so good? Have you tested it to compare to anything else? And do you assume it's the best because your engine has lasted 5,000 miles. That's one of those, uh, tribal knowledge things. I mean, I grew up in a, in a household that used Valvoline. So I used Valvoline. I mean, my dad had a truck that went 530 something thousand miles and it was, you know, that then you're a Valvoline customer, right? So you can get into situations where, you know, me, I'm pretty spoiled because with Geo, I have this ultimate destruction dude. And with the company, we have enough budget to try stuff. So, you know, you move bearing clearance around and you move piston weight around and you, you see scuffing and you, you make changes and you apply. Um, I don't have the, I don't have enough time or money to run an engine on a season with say Joe Gibbs or run it on a season on HPL and run it on a season on the next flavor. And just like the alcohol market, all of a sudden there's a lot of oil brands. You know, if you go to your local liquor store, there's a hundred different vodka brands. Well, there's, there's all these oil brands popping up because there's so much money in, in branding, you know? So that was one of the neat things about going to HPL is they're, they're actually going through all the steps to create a blend versus someone that just has a, a, a label to stick on a thing, you know, like that's if, if, um, you know, you pick a guy like Colin McGregor, if he wants to go into motor oil sales, he can right now. You know what I mean? Cause, cause there's a certain amount of people that'll just buy what people are subscribing. So do I think one motor oil is better than the other? Yeah. When you start using alcohol for fuel and the fuel's trying to wash the cylinder down and the ring needs the oil on the cylinder to create a seal, I think it's, I think it's important. Um, you know, you obviously don't want to put thick oil in a stock engine because it doesn't flow through the engine well. Um, so just use an oil weight that's good for your bearing clearances. You know, but I, I 
I'd be dumb to say that there's nothing there. Um, but if you want, you know, it would be neat to have uh, two engines and one of them you are on crappy oil, one of them you are on good oil and you just run the engines on the dyno at, at peak torque for, you know, a week or something and you take them back apart. And what's the difference, you know, and how, but I guess what's trippy about that is um, oil changes temperature pretty slowly unless the engine has a problem, right? So if you're looking at your oil temp and it's 180 and you make a rip and it's 190, A, the sensor is extremely slow. Three, the substrate is extremely slow. But what is the oil temperature on the face of the crankshaft during the power stroke? Because that oil is working to keep those parts from shearing you know, keep the oil from shearing, keep those parts from meeting. So the oil is getting worked at a uh, low level that if you looked at it like in soldiers, like if you had a, an army of 10,000 soldiers, you don't notice two, three getting whacked every second, you know, because the, the war has your attention. So looking at oil temperature and looking at oil life, you know, it's not like transmission fluid where you can burn transmission fluid pretty easy and you can smell it and say, uh oh, I'm going to change the fluid. Like oil doesn't, unless something's going really bad with the engine, oil doesn't give you those telltales. And but you shouldn't disrespect the amount of work it's doing at the bearing surface if you're making a lot of power, or you're using alcohol for fuel. That's what my buddy Chris uh, was saying. He's like, where did he say it? Caring about what oil you put in a car after first break-in only matters to Subarus and people running methanol. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes, I only use oil that has a W in the lettering because it wins. <laughs> he says stuff like that. Uh, he's hilarious. Uh, so my question for oil stuff while we're at it uh, is recently with LSs, uh, I know you have done a bunch of LS stuff, so this is a good question. Did you ever monitor oil pressure right out of the pump, like in the galley? And have you ever measured it in the top where the stock oil pressure sensor is at the same time? You know, the LS stuff that I've worked on, I I really, um, they've been LS7s, which the oiling system is uh it's okay for a factory oiling system but the way that the pan and pump sealed together never sat well with me and it doesn't have enough scavenge like scavenge is such a valuable thing in an engine that um you know i, I think it's highly underrated but going back to measuring oil pressure at different places um I've never done it. I've worked on engines like Oldsmobiles and Buicks where the oil pressure is like the last thing, you know, the gauge is the last thing in line to the oil pressures. You know, you're, you're in this car and it makes eight at an idle and, and 40 wide open. And you're like, gosh, that seems low, you know, but you have to kind of embrace like if there's liquid oil in the pan, the pump is displacing that oil in every revolution, right? So you were flowing oil through the engine and you've got to have a certain amount of pressure to keep the hydrodynamic wedge strong enough to keep parts from touching down. But it's not like you get to just set, pick this number. Like my Mustang always had a low volume pump in it. So it would turn 8,000 RPM and it would have 45 PSI of oil in it. It never hurt bearings. 
but 45 PSI and 8,000 RPM is pretty low, you know, by, by, by our standards. But again, it had a pump that the, the garroter was about half the size of the stock garroter because it, it was worth some power and that's what you took because you wanted the power. Plus parasitic, yeah. And then, uh, someone, this is a question almost every radio show in the comments. People debate this. So it's funny that you stalled out on the LS7 stuff. Because people go, the one question, I think it's always the same guy. He goes, is an LS7 a dry sump? Like, that's his question every time for guests. And then my buddy Chris goes, it's a damp sump. And then someone else goes, moist sump. Because like, yeah. everybody has yeah. explained that it's not it's not real either way. It's like a conglomerate and uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's... Uh... I don't want to sound like like a prick, but I mean, like it was a nice try, you know, if you look at how the Germans protect expensive engines with dry sumps, like there's a lot of cars that have proper dry sump systems right out of the gate where, um, Chevrolet had a budget to follow and they do a wonderful job meeting that budget with the Corvette. And, and it's a really neat car for, um, you know, an arguably low amount of money compared to the Italians and German cars. But that, that oiling system, um, I don't know. It, it's good in a stock form. I can give them that, but you, but I think they all would benefit from a scavenge pump. Um, and there's, uh, ARE makes a bolt on scavenge pump for them that I think if I had a, if I had an LS7 powered Corvette, I would just put that scavenge system on a stock car and, and let it be better. And my other, oh, what I, what I forgot to finish off was I did, I've always been like, people say the same thing about oil pressure at the end of the block. And I believe in my head and looking uh, that the oil pressure port is at the at the top and, uh, you know, everything else on an LS. So my brain's like, uh, what if I measure post and pre, like at the end, at the beginning of the block, like oil pump. And at the end of the block, top of the lifter valley galley or whatever you would call it. Right. Uh, and I would see a large delta sometimes. Like when the car was cold, not as much. When it would get hot, you would see it bleeding off quite a bit. And part of uh, me checking that out is I'm like, at what delta do you know you have bad bearings? Or could you look at this another way? Or is it just normal because there's a normal amount of bleed off through the parts? Or yeah, it's just something I've been Well, the oil, um, so the, there's a priority, right? So we need the crankshaft to have a high level of pressure. The valve train, like you could, you could, you could starve an engine's valve train and still have a pretty long running engine. So the oil at the top of the engine versus oil at the bottom of the engine, I guess I would say like, I mean, is it, is it, is it overheating parts in the valve train? If not, does it matter what the oil pressure is like up there? Because if all the parts are living, then I would rather focus on keeping the oil in the bottom of the engine and the pressure. Um, you know, you get into oil timing on the crankshaft. Like that's a neat conversation to have and look at what different OEs did to try to help with oil timing. Um, you know, different ways to get oil down a crankshaft. But as far as the oil pressure being different in different parts of the engine, yes, especially because the valve train is such a kind of a, a splash lubricating loss system. You know, like there's just oil being flung everywhere. 
to cool things off, you know, versus down the crankshaft, it's a little bit more orderly because it's pressurized through these galleys down the crank. So you think that normal, different pressures are just normal? Not, not, well, there could and couldn't be, right? Double sided thin. Well, um, if you think that the thing's hurting bearings, like cut the filter open. I guess you know, that's such a, if you want to face the music, cut the filter open. (laughs) If you want to like not blow your weekend up and tell yourself it's going to be okay, wait till Monday to cut the filter open. (laughs) But if you cut the filter open, like there's the news. Yeah. It was just something I saw and was curious if you had any comment on it. Just This is a good one now. My buddy Chris asked this, and I'm going to jump right to him because of his knowledge, and this is a good question. He says, who do you have spec your converters for the small cube engines? ProTorque. ProTorque. Yeah, ProTorque has a, um, the best the best program. They really do. The, 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 how that company came to be and the injection of technology it got to, to take a lead in that, um, in that space. Uh, you know, I, I think that they really have a neat program. That's a really neat converter. Like I, I've raced other cars with other brand converters and I've tried to work with people that, um, you know, I have a good relationship with. And they can get you close, but the pro torque, it's like, Oh, it's doing this here. Here's 300 less RPM. Here's 300 more RPM. It's so dialed that I think that's why those guys do so well in the racing environment. Um, and it, you know, in today's day and age, you can just buy one of those converters and take it apart and copy it the best you can. But, um, I, I think that, uh, in that regard, I, I respect the brand enough to say like, that's just the that's just the the one that I would reach for is the Pro Torque. That lockup converter that we have in that Supra, man, it is uh really awesome because some of those lockups will drag and or slip. Well the lockup that's in our car, it just it's it's open or it's closed. That's it. That's what it does. So we went from having um like three or four percent slip at the stripe to zero, and I can just turn the lockup on whenever. And, you know, the thing picked up like 10 mile an hour in the quarter. Um, it's mean. The lockup is mean. At that for speed, sure. throwing down 10 extra mile an hour is pretty ridiculous. Well, right. And you have to, you have to really, um, value that because if you, if you go right back to our 6R80 conversations, like, well, there's the potential. Now you're going to have smaller RPM drops. And a higher efficiency converter, like, yeah, the car's going to be faster and it's going to drive better. You know, like those, um, those converters that just are sloppy, you know, you could see it on the starting line. You could feel it, you know, a $300 torque converter, when you put it in gear and go to move the car, you can tell that it just doesn't have the magic. You know, I can tell it just doesn't have the magic where the pro torque stuff has just really been spot on for us. Hmm. Uh, this is a good one. Uh, can you explain the dynamic between you, Geo, and the white Supra? Hmm. Well, Geo and I are very different characters, and I need him and he needs me. Like, I'm this, you know, I have experience with the stuff, and he just has 
brass balls. I mean, the guy just wants to, he, he wants to, he wants to win a race. Like for me, I, uh, I like going to the race. I like participating in the race. I like dealing with the, the thing of it, but I never really set out to win things. I guess I, I was more of an experiencer where Gio wants to win. So, um, I drove that car until I realized that it didn't really matter if I drove it anymore. It, it was better if Geo drove it because then it gave me all this time to think about what was happening. Because when you're trying to work on the car and drive the car and it's a really fast car, like if you want to wear that hat because it makes you feel good, that's cool. I'm not going to knock you for it. Like I used to be that guy and now I'm just more reliant on team because you can get further and have more fun. So the, the white Supra is a, um, is a really neat vessel that is an incredible ride to make a pass in. Like I've, I've really had some neat moments in that car. And for Geo, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a toy that sits in the top of his toy box and he likes racing it. Well, I would I think he means like, uh, so he's like your friend and he's like, let's build this. And then he owns it and he pushes the envelope and you learn from it. No, the company owns it. Okay. The, it's a shared expense. We, uh, you know, Gio's old super was like 38 or 3,900 pounds. And I was just like, can we race something lighter? So we bought a roller and immediately just put a four link and a roll cage in it. And it was like 31 or 3,300 pounds right out of the gate. And it was fast right out of the gate. And it was a big relief for me because racing heavy cars is, uh, it's just more work. You know, it's more work on the engine. So the company, um, shares the expense of that car and Gio gets to drive it because he's the right person to drive it. You know, he wants that, um, that experience of glory. He wants that, uh, that thing that you get when you, when you went around. And for me, I have a good amount of fun. Um, just kind of like being a facilitator of, you know. Oh no, that all makes sense. Yeah, our, you our, need those two people to make it work, and splitting yeah. the duty where you are, you know, that guy, he's like, I'm gonna drive it, and this is what I'm gonna do, and he's everything in his head, and you're like, this is what the tune-up's doing, and you don't, like you said, you don't yeah. have to wear all the hats. Everyone has more fun, and the car functions better usually. Yeah. And if you trust that person, you know they're gonna do it. And you know that guy's oh. going to drive it. Let's not forget about the selfish aspect of it. When I walk in here on a Monday morning and we we lose or we win, it's all on my shoulders. And now it's like Geo misses a light or something. It's like, well, we're sharing. You know, we can share the we share the glory or we share share the the um, the misfortunes. But it, it's a shared experience. It's just easier than trying to be a one man band. Oh, so let's, we're gonna do a, we're gonna do a not car one just because it's fun to do this. Uh, if you had to eat a hot meal as a milkshake, what food would it be and would you enjoy it? You mean we're gonna puree it in like a high horsepower blender? I assume it means like if you, if you were like a pizza and just blend it and a milkshake. Uh, I'd probably do, uh, I'd probably do wonton soup. Oh, that's actually a great answer. 
And then uh, you you mentioned this to me, so this will be funny too. Uh, my buddy Chris Ortiz, he goes, "What hair care products do you use?" <laughs> and I have to preface that with guys when I talk to Jay about like test. We always test, and then we set up a whatever. And he goes, "It'll give me time to uh, do my hair." I think you said something like that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I can tell you that it's pretty inconvenient being involved because you spend you'll spend more money on haircuts because huh. you have to like do it every week. So I just have a little pair of clippers and I just do it myself and this is as good as it gets. So no hair care products. Just razors or whatever. Or you no, just clippers. Oh. Yeah, I just use clippers and I just do the whole thing. And if my wife's around, I say, hey, did I miss anything? And she says, no. It's, it's, it's like literally you spend 25 bucks going to the barber. So if you do that every week, it's just not. So yours feasible. is just like the the metal. There's a section of head that the hair has quit its job, but right? The rest of it's the metal, no adjustment on a trimmer. Yeah, just the rest of it's just a just a little razor. It just takes care of it. That's what I do. It's funny. Like I'll let my stuff get out of control, and uh, I'll just take like. And I actually buy. This is how ridiculous I am. Uh, I would buy the animal trimmers because they're way less than like a human trimmer. <laughs> it's the same thing. And I would, uh, no adjuster, just the metal, the blade. Right. I would just start like wherever it goes down here and just go yep. up and around and, and that's it. And, uh, I have stopped doing that because my wife is like, you look like a convict. Please put some height <laughs> on it. So now I cut it to a, a certain size, but that same thing I do is it's 25 bucks for someone to just, psh, 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 and I'm not a, right. not like you always say, not knocking somebody that likes to do their hair. I don't, I don't care. I don't care at all. So. Well, the other thing that kind of sucks about being bald is like, if you go get your haircut and the, and the person doing it is like beating you in the head with the clippers, it's pretty much not enjoyable. So I, uh. Before COVID, I was going to a place, and then during COVID, I just started doing it myself, and it was all right. Uh, this is good. What's the worst engine platform, in your opinion? <sighs> um, modern or current? Uh, maybe answer both, if there's defining line between some old ones are terrible and some new ones are terrible. I really, uh, I would say maybe do of all time and then maybe a, like a last 10 years thing that's garbage. Um, and that's going to be hard. I think the, I want to say the six liter Ford diesel, <laughs> but I don't know how much of its, um, demise had to do with untrained technicians and a over, active EGR system that basically had it choking on its own crap. Um, that was a big whoopsie. Uh, the six liter Ford, that was a hard one to swallow. And then older engines, um, you know, like when you put together a big block of olds and you have to have, you know, four and a half or five thousandths main clearance because the thing moves around so much, like that kind of, and they have small block Ford airflow. I, I would say that that one's that one was pretty rough, but I w but I don't take anything away from its character because if you said here's a seventy four four two with a big block in it, like I, I definitely want to drive that thing around. You know, it's cool in its own right for sure. 
but not maybe not not nearly as good of an engine as a big Chevy. And then, uh, what engine platform did you start tuning on? I mean, you said uh, Fords. You started on small block Fords. And uh, what challenges and if any, and did you encounter when you initially started tuning two J's? Um, well, the small block Ford was the early stuff, and then modular Fords, and then the two J. I think the I think the biggest um, hurdle that I had to overcome was the uh, not stopping and really just going to get proper training. So like if you take time out of your schedule and just go to EFI university and have Ben or one of his guys like teach you how to do it, you could pick up a few years in, in fun. Like you could, you could be having fun so much sooner, but you have to sacrifice this week in this expense in class. So for me, a lot of what happened early on was like, uh, you counted on someone until you understood that you could no longer count on them and you had to do it yourself. Um, you know, there was, there was one experience where like we took this pretty heavy job in, um, I farmed out the tuning and we got the job done and, and we really needed that money to close the month to pay our bills. And the guy that showed up to tune it really didn't know anything about what he was doing. And we wouldn't have taken the job in had he been honest because I, I only took the job in because I was counting on him, you know? So you got like, now you're on an airplane to some other state to learn how to do it the next morning because you've got to get this job done, you know? So I think the, probably the hardest thing about learning it was doing it on my heels versus just having a good mentor to say, Oh, you're interested in this. Are you serious? Okay. Do these steps. And then you could just have this easy path to success. Yeah, that's good. Uh, people ask, they also ask this, no one has yet, but it's important since you're talking about education. Like They always say, like, what should I do as a path? And then should I buy books or, or something? Because that's another thing. I've learned all of it on my own. I've really done almost no reading other than trying to catch up on stuff from people that know or my own mistakes. Well, I think that that's a pretty easy uh, question to answer because there's a few different ways a human being can learn something new. And there are humans that do really well with books and there are humans that do really well hands-on and there are humans that they just have to learn from pain. So, you know, you kind of like figure out how you learn and then pick that path, you know, but I am a big proponent of just, um, if you're serious about having a good outcome, then just go get the training, you know, that, uh, that e the EFI university or, um, the Andre's school, uh, I'm sorry. The funny accent. Yeah. He's really, he's really a neat cat and he has a really neat program for a lot of people that can't travel. You know, it's like, if you're in the States, you could just go to Ben's school. But if you're in, if you're in, South America or Grenada or somewhere like travels harder, the online classes um, that Andre offers are super awesome. So people ask me that it's HP Academy. Yeah. That's HP the other Academy, brand right. HP Academy. Yeah. There are, they're in here helping us out. Uh, people ask me about that all the time. And I'm like, 
it's like the new statement. I'm like, I have never done it. I can't tell you if it's good or bad. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, well, I, I have no experience. That's not bad. Well, I can tell you that I was, um, I was probably a half a decade into fuel injection and mostly just teaching myself through trial and error on my car. And I went to uh, Ben's school to take a MoTeC class. And, you know, he spent like half the day or whatever um, doing really basic things. And I didn't know any of them. Hmm. And I thought like, oh, my God, man, you could have picked yourself up a few years had you just acknowledged that you didn't know what you were doing and just go get the right training. You know, so I'm a big proponent of just getting the right training because the the uh, the time is too valuable to do things wrong ignorantly you know like you think you know what you're doing you don't know what you're doing but you'd let a couple years go by like ugh, i would i don't want to do that ever again yeah understood yeah that's a lot of good i like asking you questions because you definitely have good answers for sure i am like uh i'm like oh i'm thinking about stuff differently just by hearing you for sure <laughs> uh I was going through one, uh, oh, this is like an easy one then. How's your R8 coming? I was excited to see that too. Man, it's a really neat car. I, um, I've had it, you know, like kind of take it for a weekend and drive around with it. Um, had my older kid in it the other day and we just, you know, sitting at a stoplight and we make a rep, you know, zero to 150 or something. And she's just like, but it's so smooth. That's what she said. You know, she's like, she's when she was younger, I, I, um, bad parenting. I would have her go out and just change the, the boost aims in my Toyota. I think it was making like 1200 wheel and she's in the passenger seat. And one day I noticed like we we're making a rip. We we're in fourth gear and I watch her move her little thumb up to stabilize the monitor because it's shaking. And I'm like, this kid has got nerves of steel, man. <laughs> but she was in the Audi the other day and she just said it's so smooth. And it really is. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I never, you know, I never spend that much money on a car. People make those statements. But when you drive a car like that, you're like, yeah, the URS, you're like, this is what 350 grand feels like, you know, like, cause it's really easy to have a home project that 50 or a hundred thousand dollars goes into, you know, and, and you just burn the receipts because you don't want to know the truth, you know? So the Audi is a really phenomenal car and having a V10 with turbos on it is super magical, especially as we're getting to the end of high cylinder count engines, you know, like the, the 12 cylinders and 10 cylinders, they're going to have to go away. They'll be the first on the chopping block. Right. And, and we'll move to these smaller displacement turbocharged engines. It's kind of the last hoorah, if the EV stuff really plows its way in. So yeah, having access to a twin turbo 10 cylinder, super badass Audi R8, like it's a really neat car. If, if, if you're, if you're in that uh, realm of income that that's an option, I highly suggest it. It's badass. Uh, oh, it's funny. Out of no, you don't have to comment on this at all. It's just something funny my buddy Chris says. He says, want to know the worst way to learn how to tune? Ask a tuner if if uh, 
he can teach you. <laughs> yeah, I um, I've had that question a bunch, and it's just like without knowing what someone knows, where do you start? You can't make a good or bad right. And if you have a under like once you understand something, and you you know it like you know it in and out, where you just have this level of understanding, and to try to convey that to someone else. That's why we've stayed away from uh, doing like help videos with fuel injection because for one, it would open up this smorgasbord of tech support. And, you know, you kind of have to like know a certain amount to be able to be helped. You know, if you're, if you put all the rod caps on backwards on your engine, start it up and fill the oil filter up with metal, like you can't really be helped because you, you missed critical steps so early in to where it's like helping someone tune fuel injection if they really don't know it, you know, and then it's kind of a, it's kind of a heavy question to ask because the guys that are really good with it, it's a heavy investment to take on. You know, they've been working at, they've been working at it. They have, you know, the guys that are good tuners, like say you're a good tuner. Well, that's, that has a value, right? What if you understand engines and you know, fuel injection? That's a different value to a customer, you know, because you can, if you know how to make all the lines line up on the data log, that's one type of tuner. But if you know intimately how engines feel when they're happy and feel when they're sad and you know how they'll live and you know how they'll die, like that's a pretty valuable service to provide to someone. And when someone says like, Hey, can you teach me how to do that? It's like, well, how much time do you have? Because it, it takes a certain amount of time to really get a good understanding of it like an apprenticeship yeah 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 it, it is um i i wish i would have uh had someone to teach me you know it would have been so much easier uh one i've always wondered this too uh there's two questions i'm going to shove them all together in a summary but uh it seems like motec is your favorite and then what yeah. single feature of motec simple or complex is your favorite and then if you could say why you like Motec so much. So, um, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Darren Dicheria, who is a, a really neat guy and does fuel injection stuff. I would always mess with these other brands and he would only want to work on the Motec. And one day I said, well, explain to me why it's better. And he just said, I don't know, man, it's just better. And I was like, well, that's not a very good answer, you know? So, so, so after five or six more years of being a part of what seemed to be a never ending beta program, I just, I went home one day and I, my wife said, why are you upset? And I'm like, you know, there's this computer. We put it on the car. It's got this problem. The place doesn't know how to fix it. I got to deliver the car. What am I going to do? You know, like, like having that, having those experiences for a number of years. Um, and, and, you know, having these companies vet these problems, but not be able to fix them because they've got this pecking order of how to do things. And then you just go to the MoTeC and probably the best single feature of the MoTeC is if you're having a problem with the MoTeC, you open up your cell phone, you open up the camera, you flip the camera around and you look at the problem because you are the problem because the system is so ironed out that it just does its job hmm. and it does its job at a high level. When you open ECU software, how it opens is like the first date. 
You know, if your software takes a minute and a half to open, like that's a pretty rough first date. Like it may be time to consider going somewhere else versus when you open the Motec software up, it's always stable. It always, it, you know, you never like lose a log. Like you make a run and you go to upload the log and there's the log is corrupt. Well, what are you going to do? What, what's your, what's your move? How do you, how do you, you have to go out and create the risk to recreate the problem if you're doing it on the street or if you're at the racetrack, it may cost you around. Like the Motec just doesn't do that stuff. It's, it's 30 years of, of the best shit. It's 30 years of having enough margin in a product to be able to afford to do it right and pay a bunch of high level guys to just create badass stuff. I mean, it's my life got much easier and my resting rate of happiness got higher when I stopped messing with other brands. Yeah, like, well, you've mentioned this on many answers. Uh, think about the time you waste messing with something that's giving you problems. Yeah. And then the other thing is some stuff is cheaper and seems to work better, but there's zero support. Well, so so let's say you're learning fuel injection, right? We're all learning fuel injection. It's just this thing. You're not, you know, there's so much to learn that, you know, if you say that you know everything about it, you know the least. You know, you're, you're full of shit. What's that so called? you're learning. What's that curve? There's actually a, oh man, Cameron will probably post it. I'm sorry, but there's actually a, there's like a, a short end curve and it's called the something curve and it's, I know everything. It's, it's amount of knowledge and amount of, uh, ego and it right. goes up and down right. and uh, yeah. Dunning Kruger effect is exactly what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have to look no, it up. I, 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 uh, I think I've heard Jordan Peterson mention that. They're all jumping but anyhow, Yeah. Go ahead. The, uh, the, um, you're, you're, you get this fuel injection system and you're learning it, right? So you're not really aware of its bugs. You're not really aware of its shortcomings because you're just excited that the thing's taking throttle. It's not stalling out of light. You haven't blown it up in six months. Like you're, you're really getting your, you're, you're happy with what's going on, right? Look at me go. Yeah. But then when you get to know more stuff and you, you realize that you're in this long-term relationship with this device that has these hard coded problems that can't be overcome and you have to work around them the best you can to give the customer the experience that, you know, like the best experience you can give them. Like I've been travel tuning before where I had a, I had a, um, you know, I got a guy in the passenger seat with his cell phone trying to hold it on the wide band because the AV inputs on the ECU are dead and we had no air fuel data and he's, we're making runs down this old runway, you know, in a, in a thousand plus horsepower car. And, and I'm doing it with this cell phone log, you know, like, man, that's not having to, not having to do that because you're just dealing with the right products. That has a high level of value to me. So I have the Motec stuff is, uh, you know, we have two older cars. There's a, these two brothers, they have a 69 Camaro and a 66 Mustang, and they're both asshole cars. If you, you know, these cars were done and running for, you know, a year or more, and you couldn't beat on them because they were just trying to kill you. And then you put on the Motec, put the settings in the traction control, and you can just make rips in it. And the ECU is doing all this stuff in the background, and you're just, you're riding a slip aim. I mean, like, really riding a slip aim is incredibly beautiful when you when you get to experience it outside of advertisement when it's really happening 
and you're just looking at the data going, holy moly, you know, because all these ECU brands have all this great advertising, right? And they've got endorsers and this and that, like, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a market. So they treat it like a market where the Motec is just like, yeah, we got the best shit. If you want to buy it, buy it. If not, you know, like that's okay too, you know, but it, it really is a, it's, it's an awesome product. It's an awesome product. It's like, you know, when they're not drumming to get you to buy it, they, you, they don't need to sell it to you. Right. They'd rather get a quality customer than the bad customers is a whole podcast series I would love to go over, but it's a touchy subject for shops to answer, but it makes yeah. everybody laugh when I mention it, just like you, because it is, it's, well, it's serious. You want to help people. What's you know, that? you want to, you want to help people. Yeah. You want you know, like when some guy comes to you and he has a dream, like I'm very respectful. Like that's his dream. I, if I can be a part of that and, and, um, and everyone wins, like that's a good idea. But when, when they have a dream that isn't going to come true and you know it going into it because you have the experience to have been in his shoes, that's, that's kind of a sticky thing to deliver because sometimes they don't want to hear it. Well, yeah, that's, and, uh, I don't know, like when, when things happen that they should know will happen or if the car, like they want a giant cam and a stock converter and like a CTSV and it just wants to auto drive and then they're like, well, you're terrible because some XYZ tuner that's the street tunes for $100 says he can make it work. So why can't you? And then they want to do chargebacks and then they want to yell in your sh- Just stuff like that is what I'm insinuating. Yeah. But you have to... um you know, one of the things that Real Street's done a good job with is trying to educate the customers. And even if they, even if they just know a little bit more before they go to make the purchase, they're probably in a better position because what that guy needed with the CTSV is to be sat down and say, cam overlap is mechanical. Like if you do this, you will get that. You can't fix it with a keyboard because the engine is has more air going through it than it's pumping and it's just grossly inefficient at low speed because of cam overlap, you know, but you needed to get to that guy before he came to you and expected you to fix it with a laptop. Yeah. Well, uh, what was that? Uh, sorry. Doing like three things. I don't mean to, um, what was that? I call it managing expectations also because people want, they want their cake and they want tiramisu and then they want a uh, chocolate vanilla twist and then what they can only do is get one ice cream. So they, right. they don't understand that. And then when you tell them, they think you're trying to, you know, I don't know, whatever it is. But that leads us to a good non-serious question is uh, one guy asks this all the time. He goes, can we get your preferred pizza and ice cream flavors? Man, I... uh my wife is pretty strict with my health because she wants me to not die soon. So, um, I, we, we don't eat a lot of pizza, but if you're in central Florida, there's a place in Castleberry called Anthony's pizza and they have like this ricotta meatball. Oh man, it's heavenly. It is like, if I'm, if I'm driving, if I have any reason to go to that side of town, I'm stopping in. Um, and then ice cream, I just gave it up. I was such a, just, I would eat ice cream like, like a, just a lonely cat lady. I would get a thing and I would go home and I would just eat it. And I'm like, if I finish it now, I don't have to do it tomorrow. Oh, you know, man. and it was like, it was like the easiest 10 pounds I knocked off as I just stopped 
you know, I just stopped eating that and it's, it's okay. Yeah. So I don't know if I had a favorite ice cream. It would have to be some Ben and Jerry's. I mean, I, I'd probably fall into some Ben and Jerry's if I had a relapse, but for now I've quit. Uh, well, uh, one of my buddies here that I've gotten to know pretty well is the Nelsons. And right now they are like paving the path with the 4200 Atlas inline six cylinder trailblazer engine. What year? Uh, they would have to tell me, but it's like right when the, the other Atlas engine is the five cylinder from the Colorados and the H3. Yep. And then a lot of the trailblazers have this 4200. And people are like, it's fragile and it's no good at making horsepower and whatever. And uh, they just recently hit 600 to the tire through an auto with a completely stock one. Cams, valve springs, everything. And they only stopped because 600 was the goal for now to see how. So they've learned a lot about the platform. And he recently did a video. Oh, he says 02 to 09 Atlas. Okay. And then he uh, he recently got a, there's a, I think there's a non-VVT and a VVT head. And he, he recently set up his ECU to change the cam angle. And then okay. interesting stuff he was finding is different cam angle helped at different amounts of boost. Well, you, um, that's turbine dependent, right? Well, I don't because know if you found that out. About the, right, but you're just, you're, um, if you can kind of illustrate it through in your head of how the airflow happens in the engine then the pressure ratio and the cam timing are going to travel together, right? Hmm. So if you, if you can move the cam and you don't have a lot of exhaust back pressure, then that's that gain. But you can move the cam if you have a bunch of exhaust back pressure. And if it doesn't have the, if it, if it can't pick up the airflow because it can't move the air through the engine, then that's that, that's that disappointing gain. So I would say that it changing with boost level is, um, I mean, if he starts to correlate the compressor speed and the back pressure along with cam angle, he'll, he'll have data pretty quick. So you might, I might not be, I might be butchering it on them, but he did a video where he shows like back pressure and a lot of other stuff. And, uh, I mean, I get, I would say that his question is, have you heard of it? What do you think about it? Would you ever think about slapping a turbo on one? Um, I guess it depends on what wrapper it was going into. I'd have a real hard time putting a 2JZ in like a 67 Nova, but I could easily see using a modern six cylinder for that because the early six cylinders, um, you know, terrible airflow. So yeah, I mean like turbochargers have made it so easy that you know, a lot of these engines are starting off with 300 plus horsepower. You put a decent sized turbocharger on it in six or 800 horsepower just coughs out of it. And as far as the newer castings and things being weak, like those modern BMW castings are pretty tinny and they seem to cope fairly well. So, you know, it's, it's just what we have. It's what we have access to and turbochargers are super forgiving. And then, uh, well, this one, I, I probably know the answer to this being how humble you are with all these questions and answers, but, uh, squirrel tuned, a uh, guy, a buddy of mine named Jack Roberts. And, uh, he says, I'm curious if Jay feels like he learns new things all the time related to tuning. I know I do. Um, 
I think since I, I guess I have to go back to the MoTeC. Uh, since I started using the MoTeC as the primary, there was a, there was more of a, um, an understanding that it came to. But as far as like learning new things, that 6R80 is going to be, um, heavy lifting. That's going to be a really neat project to really dive into. Um, as far as like calibrating a, uh, a, you know, a regular turbocharged engine. Um, I think I got a pretty good handle on it. Uh, because with the MoTeC, you have so much data that you can just go home and geek out and come back to work the next day with, with a bunch of solutions versus, um, when you deal with muddy data systems, you know, there's more what ifs, you know, like, was it knock? Well, I mean, the MoTeC will tell you, yeah, it was knock on this cylinder. This is what you did about it. Like, there's all this fun stuff with it that I think a lot of systems advertise but don't have a super good execution. Hmm. Uh, oh, this is But I will add what I'm what I what I'm most interested in learning about is the heat mitigation. The you know keeping the parts alive, like the stuff at Bonneville, the heat mitigation part is, it's really interesting and how that, um, you know, that the tune up that's in the car at Bonneville, it's just above the threshold that it will misfire. That's how you run the engine because you can't keep it cool. You know, if we could get it, you know, with more water pressure and water flow through the engine, what if we could run four or five more degrees of timing in it where the thing's actually pretty happy, like, you know, not have to run it at seven to Lambda is like, you know, it would be way happier. So most of the, I guess the, the, the desires I have to learn more about tuning are in, uh, in heat management. Uh, where is the next one? Oh, Japanese OEM engineering or German? What do you prefer? What do you think is better or worse? I, uh, I think that you can't, can't take anything away from the Germans because the amount of technology that leaked out of that relatively small place and, um, and was used as a platform to build on and or copy, depending on how you want to word it. The, uh, the German stuff is really impressive. I mean, like that, um, that old L series engine that Dotson did, like it had too many ties to, the German engines to say that they weren't looking closely at one another. And, um, my old school machinist guy in town that helps, uh, whenever I got some weird, you know, if I have a weird engine, I bring it to him cause he just knows everything about weird stuff. Um, you know, he always would just say like, this is just a rip off of that Mercedes Benz engine. You know, when he, t- when he saw the two JZ in his opinion, it was just a rip off of the Benz engine. So, um, I would say the German stuff has always been the leading, leading technology. That's neat to know that they, they push it. So people might think it's not great because they're doing everything in its infancy. And then when it gets ironed, people use it and they're kind of hailed for doing the best job because they already, someone did the legwork. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, some of those uh, valve control systems that the German car, German cars are using, like, you know, it's it's wild it's wild for a passenger car really expensive to fix as it ages but 
as far as, you know, a brand new car, brand new tech, that stuff's hard to beat. Uh, which one? I wanted to ask one that was here. Oh, this is a good one. It's like retrospective. So it says like knowing your past self, what would you like to punch yourself in the face for? <laughs> like something you did oh, that was man. awful or obviously, you know, uh, you let laughed. me, let me assure you. you that there's a long list of things that I've beat myself up over for a number of years. And I've, uh, the past couple of years, I've finally gotten to the point where it's all just a dance. And I, um, I don't, uh, I don't think I have anything really, you know, maybe just, um, not valuing good mentors, you know, because you, you get wrapped up in doing whatever it is you're doing. And if you're a doer, if you're like addicted to doing, like you can get pretty lost in your own space. And if you don't have good mentors, a lot of time can go by without any real um, improvement of your life. So I think the one thing that I, I definitely, if I was going to punch myself in the face over something, it would be not understanding the value of good mentors at an earlier age. So you would say whatever bad stuff happened led to good stuff. So it's just a back and forth. There really isn't anything. Yeah. Like you're, you know, you, um, I just wanted I, to make I sure could, I got what you were saying. Yeah. I could probably unload a bunch of stuff that, that is heavy stuff or was once heavy stuff. But at this point in my life, it's just stuff. And the time to spend, kicking that can around versus having a good time. It's just like, eh, just, you gotta, you gotta move on. Uh, being in Florida, do you ever come across crocs near the shop? I think you guys have alligators more than crocodiles, not to be sticky a sticky subject. Those things are straight up dinosaurs and you should not trust them or get near them. We have a retention pond near the shop and there's an alligator in it. And when you start asking, how did it get there? Like those things go places. And, um, where we are moving to, where me and my family are moving to, there's alligators. And like you walk out back and there's this, you know, four foot adolescent, pre-adolescent gator. And you're like, you're a problem. And there's one that is, um, you know, it's the thing's got to be over three feet wide and it puts its back up out of the water. And you're like, well, that'll just eat you. Terrible death. Yeah. Those things are nasty animals. I'd rather, I'd rather deal with a bear or something that you can at least see coming or hear coming because those alligators are highly effective when they want to eat. Oh, I wanted to toss in, uh, Calvin with the 4,200 stuff. He also threw in here that I missed. He says, are there any pro tips from the 2JZ that may be applicable to the 4200, like inline six-cylinder specific things across the board that he could take away? Well, um, you know, the, the vibration that the engine creates is going to be different with the weight of the crank and the stroke of the crank. And, and if you're not detonating the engine... Um, and you want to make a bunch of power, I would say there probably is an ideal stroke to be looking at. Um, you know, like there's engines that will shake the flywheel loose and you're not detonating. It's just what happens to that harmonic. So 
I'd have to know a little bit more about the engine. Um, but it's a long engine. So you're going to want to monitor the, the water flow across the engine. Like with the Jay-Z, it wants to cook number six out of it because it doesn't have that water pressure. It doesn't have the, the water isn't flowing past that cylinder because they are Siamese bore blocks. You know, it's just like the deadhead of the heat sitting back there and it cooks number six out of it. So, you know, you're going to want to look closely at how the water flows through the engine and, um, you know, just don't get greedy with compression and don't get greedy with timing, you know, and that you should have a pretty good time. I mean, 4.2 liters is a pretty big engine. So I would start off with something like a 6870 and have some fun with it. I think right now, especially if it's got a moving camshaft, you could, if it's got a moving camshaft, 6870 would be pretty magical on that thing. He says they have a four inch stroke and a 93 millimeter bore, if that means anything. So he's not going to turn it, um, 8,000 will probably be his tops. Yeah. I don't, I think, I don't think he goes much over six right now because people say they yeah. have vibration issues, but he has found most of that is the stock balancer. So he has a balancer for it. It says 406 inch bore spacing, but yeah, I don't think he's going to go crazy at all with RPM. Yeah, if you don't go crazy with RPM, it's not going to try to shake stuff off of it. But like, if you have a problem with the balancer, then you'd want to ask like, what does the crank weigh? Because the OEMs are so conscious of the raw material input that if you can save a couple pounds of material here and there over a hundred thousand units, they're going to do that. So you get into these light cranks that that really need attention to dampening because they're not heavy enough to absorb the input. Yeah. You know, like it's a big, a big, how does a big hammer sound when you hit something with it versus how does a small hammer sound? Like those parts have to absorb all that. Dampens it. Racket. That's funny. Cause the way you started, I thought to myself, uh, less material. So they made like the counterbalances smaller instead of larger to effectively do it. But what you're saying is they actually made it lighter and that makes it harder for the engine to be balanced or not. Well, it's, um, they're following a a prescribed workload. And what we're trying to do is make two or three times that amount of power. Yeah. So we've taken the part and we've moved it out of its, uh, out of its engineering and then we have to start to sort problems, you know. But if you keep the engine speed low, like, don't rattle it. It's probably, I mean, that that's a lot of stroke. That thing will be a, a very responsive engine. You know, that would be a great, uh, a great, like, it would be, a, you know, how the Aussies love that Barra engine. It sounds like a better Barra because the Barra cylinder head is pretty small. Yeah, he says 7,500 max. It has super thick journals and a 2.232 rod. Yeah, it's like small block 4-ish, 2.2. Yeah, you, you, you know, you get into rod bearing widths and oiling. Like, I'm sure you could take an engine like that and make well over a 1,000 horsepower if you just applied all the right stuff, you know? You get the oiling sorted on it. You get enough turbocharger on it. You get the camshafts up, like... I mean, a thousand is so, I think I saw a video the other day. These guys have made like 600 horsepower with a Ford 300 in line six. And it's like garbage cans. So how do they do? Yeah. That? I, yeah. I mean, just a terrible cylinder head design, you know? So, uh, 
I don't know. Turbochargers really make it easy. This is uh, my buddy Chris asked. He says, has Jay worked with any other high-end standalones like Bosch or Cybex? Nope. I once put Cybex software on my computer, and I opened it up, and it felt like back in the chip-tuning days, mm. and I just closed it. Because for me, the what, what I have to ask myself is what's the best-case scenario? Like, if you have a piston manufacturer that you enjoy working with and they always give you a good part, like what do you stand to gain by going to a different piston manufacturer? So for me, what would I stand to gain going to another system? The Bosch has very little to no affordable customization and the Cyvex is a pulse width based uh, box, which I would rather have a VE box. Now the Cyvex is, is I have a couple of friends that really like Cyvex and um, I I don't have anything bad to say. I'd rather it be a VE box, but what do I stand to gain moving away from the Motec? You know, like the Motec is so good that you can, especially with how well Motec USA is doing, that if you want something, you can just get it. And if you want to learn to write it yourself, you can do that too. You know, you can, there's a lot of guys in the country that are using the M build software and they're, they're using a, like a base, a base amount of information. Like it's a 36 minus two trigger. Like they, all the trigger data stuff is sorted. You don't have to figure that out. Right. But you could say, um, you know, I want to have, uh, I want to have this style of traction control or this style of boost control, or I want to run the engine this way. I want to do torque management. Like you could just write all that stuff in. You know, there's a host of guys in the states that are writing their own packages. I guess which, that's... I, you know, it's an open source. It's it's an open source deal, but it's um, it's a professional grade open source deal at that point. That's what uh, I guess. I don't know enough about it to know. I guess I have to download it and look at something if it's easy enough. Yeah, it's neat stuff. The um, it's really searchable. And the way that they've wrote the software is you could, you could be one set of keystrokes and I could be a different set of keystrokes and we both can go out the software our own way and get to the same place. Oh, okay. Versus when you, most computer systems have their own language, like that engineer that did that software, he did it the way he did it and everyone else just followed what he did versus the, um, the Motex seems like different different minds can work through it and get to the same goal pretty quickly because I've watched, um, I've watched other people use the software and I'll be like, I didn't know you can get there from there because I always come at it from the left. They would come at it from the right and you're there either way. Like it's a really sorted product. Hmm. Very interested in it now with all you say about it. Uh, okay. Here's a, this is a few, so maybe we will only read one or two. It says, uh, why are imports better than domestic vehicles? And I just think that's, you're probably not gonna, it's, it's a use case and other things, right? Well, what do you want? I mean, do you, you like, both are fun. Yeah. Like you, you, there's no answer there. Do you want chicken? Do you want steak? Do you want blondes? Do you want brunettes? Like, like, what are you into? Like, yeah. what, what is appealing to you? So for me, it's mostly just cars. I'm just into cars. You know, like there's some real weird cars I'd love to own. And 
I, I don't even look at them as an import or domestic. It's like, do I, do I want that? Would I enjoy that? Would I, you know, what is that? What does that car drive like? Like a lot of times it's just like, what does that car drive like? You know, how does it run? Where I don't, I'm not really stuck on a badge. I grew up a Ford guy, but that's just dumb to think of it that way. I, I, I just, just a car guy. That's why I can always, you can tell when someone's brand loyal and I have a slightly less respect for them because I'm like, you're discounting a lot of things that are awesome because for some way, somehow you have gotten into a religion with a vehicle and a company that knows nothing about you and doesn't care about you. Right. You should not do that. Uh, you know. It's super common though. Super common. Uh, and then his other one says, uh, what fuels your passion for cars and racing? Um, I've just never been into anything else. I, uh, when I was a kid, it was just cars, you know, like there was a few, you know, there's just, I was just in the cars, you know, like there wasn't, there just wasn't anything else. And then what was your first race car? I think all these are great. That's why I'm going over all of his questions. Uh, first race car, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was a kid, so it's like I was racing whatever I could get behind the wheel. Um, but I, a Fox Body Mustang would be the first thing I went to the track and and made improvements and saw an ET change. You know, so I would say that was the first like anything semi serious. Uh, what's your current daily driver? That's always a good question when it comes up. So, uh, 2020 Honda Civic SI. Nice. And before that, I had a 12 SI. Wow. So you yeah. just like those, however they do it. And they're hard to beat. I, uh, I feel bad for these kids that don't understand what they're losing with the SI as it goes away because like 20 was the last year for it. Oh, really? And, uh, it's really been a fun, a really fun car. You know, like they're just, you know, good seats, good audio, good headlights, killer mileage. You know, you could chirp third gear on 87 octane. Like it, it's just a good little car. It ticks a lot of boxes uh, easily yeah. and inexpensively. Yep. This is one I'm going to ask this right away because this guy asked this and it's always something uh, I don't know enough about but want to discount. And that's, I don't, you know, the more I get older, I realize I should ask before I be a jerk about stuff. But usually me being a jerk warrants me learning a lot. So is it good or bad? I don't know. But uh, what's your, what is your preferred ethanol fuel type, like Ignite or VE or uh, a VP or one ethanol? I already know this because you you say it in yeah, the Yeah, it would be the one ethanol. But the, um, mainly because the people in the company, like you get to the point where there's just like money, money is trading hands in and out of your life. Right. So what are the people you're dealing with? Like, are they, are they good people? Can you count on them? Do they, do they do what they say they're going to do? Do they, um, are they good men? You know, like the, that group of people that's behind that one ethanol brand, they're just really a killer set of people. And, uh, and for me, that was, you know, I was interested in the product and then we did a lot of beta testing for them and a different and blend testing and all this stuff that was a few years ago. But whenever I got to meet the players, like they're just really good guys. So they've, they've, um, you know, that's where my loyalty is, is with that brand. 
where is Real Street going in the future, or where would you like to see it go? I guess either question. Um, it's definitely not the same place it was when we started, and it's it's really good. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because, like, you think about the next ten years of your life, and I'll be fifty something years old, and you know, like the the the, the course is changing. Um, but I think that uh, as long as there's not like a major change in the in the in the way currency is managed, as far as like the U.S. currency, um, I think Real Street will continue to grow. Because the the people that are inside the company now, they're just really, really great people. We've got a really great set of of people here. You know, like the the um I never, you know, grow you grow up I grew up in a small business that was uh always like one shit fire after another, you know? So to be in a company that everyone is just so good, um, and they they care about the company, they care about the customers, they care about the outcomes, like I, I think that company is uh, super, super awesome. <laughs> someone said uh, someone needs to make Matt a sign that says Struggle Street that looks just like the real street sign. So this is a magnet. And then on the staircase near my dyno, someone made real street signs that are reflective and all. And uh, it says Broken Dreams Boulevard. Oh, and it God. says Struggle Street. And then the other one said, it says something else. I can't even remember it right now. So I just wanted to show people that's it, awesome it, it already exists when's the last time you blew something up oh man i have to think like uh catastrophic engine failure or just anything uh catastrophic engine failure oh because i was gonna say i tossed like six drive shafts a year so i recently did one of those <laughs> <laughs> but uh oh one of the most recent I can remember was I did the 8s for 8 car, and it ended up being a bad coil pack because I'm like, man, it's been a while since I hurt something. I'm usually what I think is fairly conservative, and I made a hit on that car, and it shot a potato chip-sized piece of the head gasket out and just vented all the coolant. And I'm like, I mean, I'm like, I probably look like an asshole, but why did that happen? Like, right. I put a pretty soft tune-up in, so why did it? It came up, it made like 750, and went bop, and just shot all the coolant out. I'm like, okay, because uh, what I was trying to do was go 8s with a Gen 3, 4.8 with paper head gaskets, like the the crappiest version of all of those engines, and hang it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, maybe uh, I've never pushed a paper head gasket car this far. Maybe that was it. So I put a steel gasket in it, and it TNT'd the cylinder. Like, it just turned it into powder. And I'm yes. like, man, that never happens. What the hell? And then... Uh, it did it like two, well, it did the head gasket, and then it TNT'd the cylinder, and then it TNT'd it again. And I, all I was doing is swapping injectors and everything. And then uh, I find, you know, I knew that those D585 coil packs from Chevy, the auto fire heat sink tops, yeah. like if they feel offended, they fire, and that can be... Yeah, if you overdwell them, they just cough it up. They, someone was saying uh, amperage, they can get pissed or dwell. And and then when they get older, they can auto fire at lower dwells. And uh, so that's what was happening. Because all I did was I took the coil pack rack off of the, it was number one. So I literally did nothing else but swapped that coil packs. Because what I would do is I take it apart and lay everything out and put it all back in. That's one way I do stuff. 
So I was putting the same rack on the same side every time. And I did a coil pack and uh, we went eights the next time we went to the track. So, That's but cool. yeah, that one was pretty catastrophic. Sometimes like questions like this, I'm terrible verbatim. Because uh, if I think like it blocks it all out. I'm trying to think of the last one I really vented good. I've done it a bunch of times. Uh, like I always say to people, I'm like, if it's going to come apart, it's going to come apart. It's usually not. My first couple hits, a lot of times people are almost crying because I have like no ignition in it. And I threw, I highlighted everything up in boost and whacked it with 25%. I'm like, I'm assuming this is going to blow soot and not want to accelerate just to make sure right. a bunch of things. And then they're like, oh, they have like an 80 millimeter, six liter turbo LS and it makes like 360 horsepower. Uh, I'm like, all I wanted to see was all of the things work, but, uh, man, I don't know. A lot of it's the drive shaft stuff anymore. People don't have, if it's a leaf spring car and they don't have a way to arrest the spring or however you would say that. And it puts, it puts the, it'll, uh, axle wrap and it puts the thing terminal. One of them was fantastic. I should just, that's like the bet. I'll show you the, I'll tell you the best failure, not the last failure. I certainly had a bunch. But that one was awesome. So it was an S10 Turbo LS, and it had nothing. It had like a monoleaf or a split monoleaf or whatever with no, uh, nothing holding it from wrapping. And uh, with a certain amount of power, it made decent power, but then as I increased the power, it took the U-joint apart. And then what it did was it baseball batted the floor so hard that it, it split the transmission case end to end. And it split the transmission case so hard that it split the block on the left side into the oil galley. And then it sprayed the hot oil on the turbo kit and set fire to the engine bay. And once we got that under control, he had the battery in the back, in the bed of the S10. It it V'd like this, and we couldn't even get the drive shaft out from underneath. We had to jack the thing up to move the drive shaft. But it hit the battery box and it exploded the battery and we found one of the terminals up on the mezzanine. So it, it and it sheared the pinion uh U-joint. It didn't just break the U-joint, it sheared the pinion off. So it broke and it probably broke the rear. Like something in the rear had to everything else broke. So I'm like, man, end to end, this car shattered. And what's what's kinda the 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 silver lining there is that would have happened at the track. Yeah. So he would have egged that thing apart, but it's just, it's funny to tell people now, like, I'm like, your axle's moving a lot, or it doesn't have any, it's a leaf spring car with no, and they're like, oh, whatever. I'm like, classically, you gentlemen that say whatever happens, happens, haven't felt the pain. <laughs> no, no. Because people often bring me, mostly I would say it's transmissions. I think I'm pretty good, I got a good handle on uh, it's either, like I keep saying, it's oil pressure issue or something mechanical or it starts making noise and I stop or I just melt someone's high gear out of their trans. Because people do like a 4L60E turbo 1500 and I'm like, we're going to go through high gear on unloaded pulls in a couple pulls and I don't want to push this on your trailer. So, right. So a lot of it's, I would say, transmission and uh, sometimes people people bring me a car that's already overheating bad. And, like, it'll just be boiling the whole time. And I'm like, we're wasting all of your time trying to make this cool. Right. So I can't remember the last rods out. That drive shaft sounds pretty awesome. That was just end-to-end. Oh, man. I mean, it's terrible, but in retrospect, it's awesome. it was incredible, that amount of damage. 
Yeah, I remember there would be uh, there'd be customers that came in with um, 05 uh, Mustangs when 05s came out, and they would uh, they would break a drive shaft and they would break the trans and the block. You know, it's like, and you have to tell the customer like, this is like, you know, you've got a serious problem on your hands, and you know, just just drive shaft broke, and then rip the ears off the block in the process. You know, it's a bad deal. Oh yeah, and then uh, I had an F one fifty, like a twenty twenty F one fifty, recently break the drive shaft, and it hit the plastic gas tank and just bent the hell out yeah. of it. So that stuff's scary too. And then like my buddy Cameron Vic is in here now. He builds transmissions, and people will break an axle or something, and then they never take the tranny apart. And as he explains, it'll all like ninety nine percent of the time hurt the tranny. And then people don't yeah. respect that, and then they take the car back out when they fix the diff, and then they burn the tranny up in like two, three, four. Pa- He's like, it may not happen soon, but you, uh, he'll probably no. he'll probably explain it. Um, well, yeah, it's easy to it's easy to that that energy went somewhere, right? And it went up the driveline. That it, the stuff doesn't forget it. It may not burn you that day, but it doesn't forget what happened to it. That's why, like, there's guys that they won't reuse a crank if it's lost a rod, you know? Like, there's there's people that won't reuse stuff if it's seen high levels of shock because it's traumatized. He says, direct drum through the floor. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of those, he explained to me, a lot of those failures, it just, like, locks up or overspins the one drum and just slings it like a high-powered... Uh, overspin the direct drum while the low sprag breaks from the drive shaft. Axle brake. <laughs> I'll let that him happens. explain it. I don't. I don't care to know anything about transmissions. I know too no, many. No, I've never, are, never been interested in them. I know too many people that are good at it, and I'm like, thanks. You did an incredible job. I don't need to know anything else. Right. Uh. Would you favor? Oh. In terms of keeping a stock bottom end motor alive, would you favor MBT ignition timing and less boost pressure or less timing and more boost pressure and why? That's a good question. I have my own thoughts. So how are you mitigating air inlet temp and and how good is that information? Because like as the boost pressure goes up, then the back pressure goes up. So then you're trapping more heat in the engine. Um, I think what's really neat about turbo engines is if you have a, if you have tuned a fair share of them, there, there's definitely a sweet spot where they don't need a lot of lead and they don't make a lot of back pressure. And that's the best place for that to live. But you need to know, like, what's the power goal? What's the displacement? What's the turbine flow? And then you can start to draw that out. Um, I, I would say that nothing should be really tuned um, for an optimized spark when it's got a aftermarket forced induction approach, because then you don't have room for error. You know, if you're on the dyno and you've you've tuned it for the max the max spark, you put another degree in it, it does nothing or rattles. Where's your safety margin? You know, versus coming down a little bit and um, and having a, a decent safety margin. Because if you're running the engine on gasoline, at least it rattles well. 
at least it has audible knock to be heard. When you're running the engine on ethanol or methanol, its cries are muffled because of the the cylinder volume, uh, the fuel volume in the cylinders is a muffler of its own. You know, it changes the way that cylinder rings, so they die a different death. But neither in neither in neither approach should you be um, edging up on the on what the engine will tolerate for timing. You know, like you probably don't have enough money to take that approach because you're going to break stuff. You've got to have margin for error. So how much power, how much turbocharger, how big is the engine? And then you can, you can kind of formulate a better plan. Yeah. I would say it's, it's relative. Again, uh, I feel like, uh, a lot of the questions people have, like you say, it's not understanding all of it. So you almost want to, I almost want to give these people like a weird knee jerk reaction, but I, I'm hoping I matured more than well, that over the years. But so then, let's go back to that guy's question for a second. Well, like you said to him, is he mature enough to stay there? Because he has a turbocharger. If that thing's got 14 pounds of boost in it this week, it's going to have 16 in it in a month. So, so you, you, you'll have to, you'll have to, if you're really going to stay somewhere, you're talking about like an OEM level approach where you're going to optimize a pressure ratio across the engine and optimize a spark map for it. That, that's, that's a pretty neat approach. And then I would tend to say you'd, you'd probably have a little bit higher compression ratio. You'd probably have um, a little bit less boost pressure and you'd have a, a more efficient engine as a whole, which is kind of how the OEMs are handling it now. If you think about OEM turbocharging, like when the Evo came out, it was low compression or DSM. I mean, you could buy a stock DSM and wire the wastegate shut. And it doesn't blow up <laughs> because it's got a really low compression ratio. So it doesn't want to knock and it, it had enough fuel to cover it for it. And a lot of people enjoyed their DSMs with a piece of wire holding the wastegate closed. Carburetor you know? return springs on Supras. Yeah. So it just, um, what's your threshold of pain? I guess when it comes to, Boost in timing, there's always more to be had, but the more doesn't last as long. Well, I would say I look for like a delta or diminishing gain. That's the way I do it. My buddy uh, Chris said the same thing. Like when I set them up, uh, so say obviously you want to get a certain amount of boost in that's not blowing hot air, and then you want to see like a percentage gain or like say it's 25 horsepower per pound. There's some point where that's going to go right to 19 and then right to 8. Well, so I got the luxury of learning with Geo, and I would just read the engine parts. So if I put my – when I was doing um, – I came in on a Saturday with my Toyota, and I was going to I was gonna rattle the knock sensors. It's what I was after, you know? So typically, let's say that car has on pump gas about 18 PSI, and it's available from, say, 4,500 to 8,000. And I would run it at 12 degrees at – 4,000 and it would taper up to say 16 degrees at 8,000 and it would make a certain power level and that engine will live that way. And I go, well, it's time to make it knock. Let's, let's give it to it. So I go from 4,000 to 8,000. I throw 20 in the whole map and I make a run. It doesn't rattle. Well, if I take it out and beat on it on the street, it will rattle. It will in, in high gear, under sustained load, it's going to rattle. But if I move that lambda from, um, say, 0.75 to 0.83, instantly thing is ringing like a bell. 
like it just would light up and knock because it would just lose control of itself very quickly. So there's definitely different ways to tune the engine. You could leave the engine. There's guys that will run the engines rich with a lot of lead. There's guys that will run the engine at a um, respectable mixture and a respectable timing level. And those engines will run the same at the racetrack, you know. The, the, what, what you have to do is you have to run the engine for a while and take it apart and look at the pins and look at the rod bearings. And then you can say like, eh, it's got too much lead in it, you know, but as long as it's rich enough that it doesn't start to, that it doesn't just lose control of itself and blow up, you know, you can, you can have a range of timing and get, get to the same end game as far as an ET or horsepower number, but you got to be careful in a dyno because the dynos, um, Dynos are over pretty quickly. If you get into a steady state dyno that you can have, say, let's say that when you make a pass at the quarter mile and it's seven seconds to get through, you know, this pass, right? Well, if you could load it that much on a, on a dyno, you don't have the cooling to really do that, especially stationary because you don't have the airflow. So, you know, you have to, you have to find out what it likes on the dyno and then back it down a couple degrees and let it live. Yeah, then maybe, like you said, if you want to edge it up at the end of the year or whatever. See, that's where, that's where like, uh, we would differ greatly because I just, I have a way that I do it and then that's it. And here's a funny story. Like, when I first got into tuning a little bit on my own, I was on the Turbo Forums. Uh, like, a, I remember this. A fantastic, yeah. I learned so much. And one of the yeah, things. Yeah, that was like, a neat forum. One of the things I learned, man, I went in there and I was like, how do I know how much timing to put into this engine? And the first reply, a guy says, well, you got to take it apart and measure the squish. Like similar to what you're saying, you're so far into the, you already know what it likes and everything else, but you're, you're learning what beats up the parts. So what this guy meant, he was a top fuel guy. And he's like, and after I asked, like he would keep uh, elaborating, but it was a funny way to teach me. But slowly, he wanted to make sure I knew, or he knew I knew what I was looking at. And he's like, you take the wrist pin out and you put it in your jig and you spin it with the dial indicator. And the farther you're bending this wrist pin, that's extremely strong, you take some timing out. And it, literally, his data meant nothing because it was a top fuel car that would wreck everything. So each day he'd be like, we're really smashing the wrist pin. We need to back it out this day. Like that's all the only measurement that mattered to him was how much it was crushing a wrist pin. I've, uh, you know, with, with our white car, the last couple hundred horsepower, I've started to close the small end of the rod up, you know, before I could run a set of aluminum rods and just be like, well, they're, they're two and a half at room temp and you run it for a while and they're two and a half at room temp. And then there's like, one seven, one six at room temp. And it's like the rod is closing up. Well, in that, in that last, you know, couple hundred horsepower was this, this gross IAT that came along with it. The thing's rattling a little bit, right? It's not rattling enough that it blows up. It's not rattling enough that, that, you know, um, it's, it's, it's rich enough that it's not going to torch, but what it needs is less IAT. Because on that long run, it just starts to eat, you know? And there's guys that, um, you know, the wrist pin and the top fuel part, yeah, it blows up all the time. But there's a lot to be learned in just how the parts live, you know? That's why the OEs get away with so much with such light parts is they're not rattling the engines. Yeah, that's all. 
So I thought that was funny being a total noob and he's like, take your wrist pin out and measure the, you know, <laughs> between tuning sessions. I'm like, yeah. well, okay, that's a different level than uh, what I was asking, but thanks. Uh, where was the good one I wanted to go over here? There was a good one here. Oh, what's your favorite engine and why? Uh... Tough. Probably the Offenhauser would be my favorite engine. What is that? It's like this uh, this thing that happened that everybody just swept under the rug. <laughs> it's a really uh, so these these guys in like the 30s um, had this had access to this small displacement um, French engine, and they just made it bigger. And it got as big as like 270 inches and it didn't have a head gasket and it won at Indy for like 50 years with boost. And it was a, it has cam towers and, and, uh, um, bucket valve train and like a gear driven timing system. Like it's, it's the baddest racing engine ever built. Um, so that I believe would be if any of you guys are like in the car stuff and you and you want to enjoy reading or still enjoy reading, pick up a book on the Offenhauser. It's a super badass engine. I wrote it down because I don't know anything about it and I don't like that. Yeah. No, I've uh I've I've never heard one running in person, but I've um I've seen them before at the Peterson and uh it's a really like when you look at the clutch basket and you think like all this technology that just went dormant for decades and decades and decades. And then we want to pat ourselves on the back for doing whatever it is we're doing now. When we basically had this blueprint of how to build a phenomenal racing engine, you know, pre-World War II. Uh, what do you think about direct injection? I think it's really cool. Um, it obviously has its limitations, and I think if you're going to make any power, you've got to have both port and direct injection. Um, it's interesting to look at the, the, the lambda on a DI engine versus a port engine. Um, you've got to run a lot more fuel through a port engine to keep it from burning up, um, which dives into the flame propaganda and how that cylinder manages heat. And then with a DI engine, um, because the fuel is not washing on the walls the way it is in the port engine, you know, you could argue that you could have uh, less oil consumption and um, a more efficient engine because you're not washing away that ring seal. It's like they're neat. Um, they're noisy. They're here. You're going to have to deal with them, you know. It's already here. It doesn't matter yeah. what you like about it or not. Yeah, yeah, it's it's happening, so... Uh, I would take both if I if I could. If you if if you said well, what's your preference, I would want an engine that was port ANDI. That's a lot of them are. Well, they've realized that to have any performance, it needs port. So a lot of stuff right. is both. Like uh, yep. I found out, like a lot of the newer Mustangs are both. And then uh, my wife has an RS3, and that's both. A bunch of stuff is. Both. Yeah, the uh, those little BRZs, the FRS BRZ thing is both. 
they'll they'll run if you pay attention to them at idle. They'll turn the DI off and on. You can hear them because yeah, they'll still nice. cycle them. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty neat little engine. Uh oh, about your billet block platform. How did the billet block platform help the two JZ platform, and do you think you'll see billet heads in the future? Um. Well, exclude access to proper castings first. In the you know, you say we cannot have a better iron casting, so we must do something. That something's going to be billet. Um. For us, it was a, it was an, it was a good improvement because the stock engine just would not keep shape at the deck once we got into the sixes. You'd make five or six passes. It would start to make coolant pressure and that's what you had. And you take it apart and the thing just needed a couple thousands worth of material cut off the deck because engines move when they're being used. So the billet engine with the way that the sleeves were done and stuff, it, it solved a uh, a problem for me. Um, billet cylinder heads, yeah, they're here. They're they're bouncing around quietly. There's guys working on them. Um, I mean, I guess it's less appealing to me because it, then it becomes just a strictly a race car. You, if you can't run water through it, uh, my interest goes down quite a bit because. Um, because it just limits the places you can enjoy it. But yeah, the billet stuff's here. It's good. It, it, um, you know, the manufacturing process from idea to a part in your hand that you can run on an engine, the billet stuff is extremely awesome versus having to go through the, um, expense and engineering of casting. And you could go, you know, you could be 300 grand into a casting project and it'd be a flop, you know, like a billet engine, you could just, Get it done. It's fairly low cost, um, and it's a neat it's a neat asset for uh, for a race car for sure. Uh, this is a good one. Uh, on the subject of head gaskets, going from an MLS to a copper or fire ring, or Athena style pros cons etc. Actually, what I would like an answer to is what is Athena style? I don't even know. I hear. People tossing around the Athena head gasket thing, but what even is it? Um, it's not new. None of this stuff is new. Uh, you know, all this stuff is decades old. It just comes back or, or is migrating through different communities. Athena is like a cut ring. So the, um, the, the surface of the ring is like this, like serrated. Hmm. And they generally have it around some sort of paper type gasket and depending on the hardness of the cylinder head it may or may not may not bite in but the um the copper the fire ring the cut ring or athena however you want to call it they all suffer the same shortcoming and that is like the engine is going to move so a mls gasket will give you Three thousandths or so of, of spring memory of movement as the parts are shifting around, uh, versus the other ring. The other rings are just solid, but they they both have their place. You know, if you have an engine that doesn't move around a lot on itself, the fire ring stuff is really tough. It really works well, 
but you've got to have everything super flat because it has no memory. Hmm. You know, it, it, it just does its job. It's a very kind of a dumb approach versus the MLS gasket um, allows for some spring. Oh, good and the coppers are soft. So you can tear a copper up sometimes kind of like you'd tear a paper up and not have to um, blow, you know, you don't have a blowtorch going on where MLS is generally blowtorch time. I've done it. Yeah, that's super destructive. I've actually torched a cylinder head out, emptied my block, and then drove it home laughing. Put another different cylinder head on it. It had 862s. It was a 5.3. And I had my friend bent a bunch of valves in an LS1 car, so they were 241s. So what I did was took all the valves that were seemingly flat, laughably flat, put them all in one cylinder head, put it on the motor. So it had two different cylinder heads. And uh, I used a, a big file to clear off the block because it had a little bit of, what is an iron block? I'm like, whatever, I slapped it back together and made 7-Eleven with it. Yeah. But it's... Yeah, it's, no, there's a lot, there's a lot that, there's a lot that can happen with stuff not being ideal, mm-hmm. you know? But in those conditions, like, what are you going to do? Like, you watch a nitrous guy scrub a piston out of his bore and then go win around. round. Yep. You know, like it happens. I think it's funny. Yeah, what's the... Oh, no, it's just like that learning experience was funny because that's where I learned, like, if people are a bullshitter or whatever because I'm like, I've done this, and I videotaped it, and I put it on YouTube, and, like, it happened, and I have proof of it because there's other guys, like, we call them old heads or a boomer or whatever, and they, uh, they're they like, oh, well, we whatever, and I'm like, what is it? Uh, someone posted a chart on Sloppy. It kills me. And it says the amount of cars that do wheelies versus smartphones. Because, like, no one has evidence of it. So, like, they were all just like, my car wheelied. It would wheelie all day. Right. And I'm like, right. it probably... I said, you know what? I bought an Isuzu Amigo for $150, put it in four low and second, and it smashed the gas in and out. And that thing almost flipped over. It would wheelie so high. So, uh, you know. That sounds like a good time. What kind of car is that? Uh, well, before Sloppy Mechanics got into, like, tuning and everything, if you look, I've been doing videos since YouTube started in 06. A lot of what we would do is buy, in this area, you could buy cars that were ruined from the salt belt, and they wouldn't pass inspection, so people would get rid of them. So I had friends with shops and stuff, and they're like, I got a $150 car here, we don't want to do anything with it, and they knew we would destroy it. So, also, before, Cash for Clunkers ruined every cool rear-wheel drive car ever. Because I had other friends that would work at a dealership, and he'd be like, some old lady here just brought in a 1982 Crown Vic. And we'll give it to you guys for 150 bucks. So we would take a car like that and go up, the coal roads aren't far from here. We would go on coal roads and, like, ramp them and smash them into everything. And uh, and then we would take that car back, like, with the whole front suspension broken, the bumper dragging, the rad smashed in two, and we would scrap it. We would scrap it for 250 and make money being total assholes with these cars. So, and then we would hook up wet nitrous kits on them. Like, I would fill the uh, washer overflow tank with fuel, and we'd stick a fuel pump in it, and we learned how to deadhead, like, the low-pressure pumps into a nitrous kit, and, yeah, just total retards. That sounds like a good time. It was, yeah. So I bought an Amigo, and it was unstoppable. It was absolutely unstoppable. The whole four-wheel drive system worked. It was like a go-kart with... Amigo. 
Zuzu Amigo. Yeah, I'm trying to think about. They used to have these commercials, Amigo, Amigo. We'd have to look it up on YouTube, guys. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find. Um... It looks like a bigger tracker or a samurai. Okay, because I'm thinking top. Trooper. I'm thinking a Zuzu Trooper. That's bigger. That's like a Honda Pilot size. This thing okay, is like. I'll have to look up the Amigo. It's like a smaller Jeep in between a Jeep Wrangler and a Samurai. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it had the big, ugly spare tire on the back. Yep, my soft top was completely gone, and it would rain. And uh, I would get in it and be like, oh, the seat's not bad. And I'd sit on a towel and be like, I'm going to get a little wet. First stop you'd make, it would just shower you because it would all be sitting on the deck above the right. rear axle. And you, I would never remember. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> it would just cover me in. So there's my Azuzu Amigo stories. Where were we huh. now? <laughs> oh, here's a good one. This I actually like this question. It's uh, do do you think eights for eight would be possible with a two JZ or a one J or whatever? Um, get this. Sit on uh, the COVID pricing part, like. Well, pre-COVID pricing, yes, yeah, do the pre-COVID. Yeah, thing. yeah, pre-COVID pricing, no problem because you could just get a, uh, you could do it really cheap, and you could just have a two J and a turbo and some camshafts and some sort of cheap GM automatic like a Power Glide and stuff all that and an S10 or a G body, and it would just do it. Hmm. That's why I was surprised when people were like. Gave I well I first when I started doing that I said to my wife I said this is gonna make a lot of people mad because I know plenty of people that have spent like forty grand and they can't get out of like the nine sixties right so obviously uh, that's gonna frustrate people but I think a lot of people can learn from it and then halfway through the build I was looking at this will probably cost fifty three hundred bucks where I'm at fifty three fifty five hundred but I knew no one would believe that at all so halfway through i started doing like minor upgrades to future proof it like i did a okay. i did a bread box the nnbs trailblazer style intake instead of the gen 3 and like small stuff like that just to actually increase the price to in the 8000 range and i did a whole spreadsheet and some of it's like ridiculous things for like 50 cents and th you know i just i actually was throwing stuff in to get the cost up but uh, how many people have followed that recipe uh, I don't know for pure drag cars, but one of my one of my uh, the best one I ever did was a I called it uh, Project Don't BS Me, and what I would always do is suggest these builds to people, and uh, I'm like, you know what? At some point, I'm telling everybody to do this, and I'm not doing it. So I had my Colorado that made 1076, and I would routinely keep it around 850 wheel, and I set up a boost by mile an hour that I drove around it most of the time. I took that entire combination out and shelved it and showed people like a fresh combo. And it was 3500 bucks for my Colorado. And then it was 3500 bucks for the drivetrain. And that includes like a Ford Explorer rear, Moroso patches to weld it in, uh, the turbo, the fuel, the pumps, the uh, manifold, like everything. So it was 3500 each. And I'm like, you can get a cheaper car than this 3500 bucks, but uh, this truck is so useful. And uh, what I said is I, I built that combo up to make 500 wheel through an auto because I said most people, that's a shit your pants, have fun forever amount of power. And in my opinion, like I said, I said to someone today, everyone wants 850 in a 3,000 pound Fox. 
but that's total death for a lot of people. And it's harder to get there. The expense is exponential to clear some of these humps. And uh, so a lot of people would copy it, and I would just have pump gas cars making 500 wheel through autos all day. So uh, that's what I did it. And I would say I do like, I don't know if I do 100 anymore since uh, when, uh, when my kid was born, I only do like two to three cars a week. I do like two on Sundays and some on Thursday nights. But I would do like 100 cars a year that copied that platform. Mm. And all That's of awesome. them were successful. So that was another thing, like the whole don't BS me thing is you can do it too. You can do this. And I've had right. uh, what's always cool about sloppy and is always motivating and nice to hear is there were so like half of the people are like my dad's big block. All I know is carburetors from him. We both saw how easy this seems. And we built a C10 with a turbo and whatever. And we just did this. And uh, especially with like Terminator, you can do what's called Game Boy. You just did you know that about the new Holly stuff? Uh, you can go through a I wizard. Will... You can go through yeah. a wizard, like drive by wire four LADE fuel injection, and you can start it and drive it immediately as long as you're not. Yeah, no, I've done that with a sniper. I think it's yeah, called same sniper. Thing. Yeah, same, same thing. Like I've set up wizard and just gets running. But they have yeah. that for the Terminator. Can do like Coyote, five liter LS Dodge, like the new Hemi. Uh, and I've had people do a Game Boy tune, or what you can do is you can get one of my custom tunes. I put a, I have a tune cabinet, I call it, and I put a lot of tune files on there for these people doing self-builds to help themselves. Because uh, I think for a tuner, it's bad to have those files, but for someone starting, it really is a big foot in the door. Uh, right. So these guys, a plenty of people would like take my custom tune and just match my inputs outputs, like a flex sensor or whatever, whatever. And then they would, uh, I had one guy load one of my bass tunes with similar map sensor and everything has to be right, of course. And uh, they did a little bit of street driving, saw the percentages for closed loop weren't bad, went to the track and cracked out a 968. So yeah. stuff like that is uh, rewarding. And then the people that are like, my dad and I were just stuffed in carburetors and nothing ever went anywhere and didn't make any real power. And then they have a car that makes 500 through an auto, and they're like, this is terrifying, but it's really cool. And then yeah. since it's a turbo car, you can adjust the power. If you put a low enough spring in, you can make it pretty docile. So, yeah, all of that. So that would be my most popular copied combo. That's cool. That's a lot of people that got to have fun off a of lot. your engineering. At least once That's a cool. week is one of those, or more. Maybe it's everything. And then some people... Well, it's important you kind of like uh you you provided an, any a, a followable path yes. you know that's a big deal yeah a tech mark just said he copied one of my builds and it went 889 at 151 that's badass and then other people like i watch other tuning guys on youtube and i've gotten to know joe simpson pretty well and he said a guy had a Don't BS Me clone with $3,000 and it made seven seventy three on his hub dyno. Man, that's badass. Because I pick a turbo. I like, uh, I've been working with VS Racing for like 15 years. And he has a turbo. One of my favorites is he has a bunch of different iterations, generations of a 7875. And it's got to be my favorite turbo size because it's good for... And then the billet ones have really good transient response. So you can have a 4.8 that you would think would be lazy to light something like that. And uh, it has great like throttle response. It's more than most people expect for even having a smaller engine. 
And then other ridiculous things have happened where I have found cheaper camshafts by manufacturers to down to like, uh, we call it, what's funny is I use this cam so much and I've told people to use it that uh, the manufacturer contacted me because they found out, they went to PRI and everyone was running up to the Elgin booth. Do you sell a sloppy stage two? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and they're like, as a joke, I called it the sloppy stage two. And uh, right. they got so involved and loved it so much, the story and everything. I have a, they sent me a bunch of the catalogs, but the catalogs. So last year, I think was their hundredth year. And they, in the hundred year catalogs and on, it says it has a little uh, asterisk next to the, it's a Elgin 1840p. And it says, look down low. And it says, this is a sloppy stage two camshaft. They put it in their <laughs> magazine. So that's awesome. Crazy stuff like that has happened. And I'm happy that I could. Uh, another thing is uh, I said a long time ago, I'm giving hot rodding back to the people because one of my, th you might've seen it in my intro video. I'm like, it's some sort of dark magic thing that people protect. And it's not really, it's just that in my experience, people that are secretive don't know how to explain it or they don't know anything. They can't, they can't tell you because it's, well, they're protecting their income. Well, there's some of them, but when you go to a track like Island and you ask a guy how his carbureted small block goes fast, I, I can understand like in your program, you wouldn't want to hand out tunes, but it's, it's guys that are going 13s with a big block and stuff. And you ask them questions and they're like, oh, this is, I can't tell you. It's a secret. Yeah. That's now what the, I'm talking um, about. For me, it was, uh, tuning in the islands and, um, and seeing how the information was uh, transferred amongst them on the island and the people that were in control of the information, um, it just wasn't just wasn't cool. So that was like kind of the kickoff to the tech tip stuff that we were doing was just helping those guys because in America, like we have so much resource. You know, like if you can't figure it out in America, like maybe you're not going to figure it out. But over in other places. They just don't have the resources aside from YouTube. I mean, YouTube is like a college to a lot of places. So for us, it's normally a place that we heckle each other or feel brave behind a keyboard. But like the, the guys that, the, the guys that were really not giving the hot rodding back to the people, as you put it, like they weren't, they weren't helping anyone and they were shrinking the whole market because nobody could afford to race. And the guys that were trying to do it themselves, they would just blow their stuff up right away. And, this one guy could maybe he could be the winner all the time, but the community as a whole was suffering versus growing the community, which works for everyone. Yeah, and that's uh, TechMark just said this is something I say to people: uh, regurgitating poor information. So people for years, like the the small block guys that I like to make fun of, not all of them are that bad, but I just I go after them because they're the worst. I think like they do the cam and stock valve springs to go to a car show and have a, I call it a potato cam. Yeah. So yeah. they set their idle at like 450 and have two pounds of oil pressure, but a potatoes. So everyone's right. like, wow, potato, potato. But I'm like, it sounds but like that's a that era person. Yeah. And that's now people hear like one of my cars with like a 950 idle. And it's, it's like really crazy. Like the cadence and the dance. And they're like, man, what's that idle? And I'm like a thousand. And they're like, Oh, that's insane. And I'm like, okay, it's a, that's what it likes to be. It makes peak vacuum there and blah, 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 blah. So yeah. Well, it helps when you can move the, um, you know, the ignition timing 
can be moved so quickly that you can you can really make a camshaft behave pretty good nowadays with injection because you're you're holding the engine speed solid with the ignition timing moving around and the the, the overlap of the cam kind of like becomes way more manageable versus with a carburetor you know if you think about how slow a distributor advance works and the carburetor like those guys that they just never really had access to the tools to make it really happy you know sure. versus fuel injection is is i mean I, I don't know that i would put a carburetor on something anymore but i i respect the magic you know if you have an na engine they're hard to beat um but the tuning stuff with drivability and idle and whatnot the fuel injection is really cool yeah, crushes it. Oh, someone said here they tagged me and they said, "Don't forget, you also single-handedly raised the value of Ford Fairmonts." So I've built a lot <laughs> of Fairmont projects, a lot of them, and uh, I used to get them for like two hundred bucks, four hundred fifty bucks max, and they were clean and they were like old lady owned their whole life, and she died, and her kids sold it. They're like, "I have this old crappy Ford, and I'd buy it," and I'm like, "This thing is incredible." And uh, we call it the sloppy tax. When something goes out of stock or gets the price hiked to astronomical. Now, uh, Fairmonts are about 10 times their original price. <laughs> it's not even... You can buy a really bad... Some people are lucky and no one knows about this. And they can get one for like 450 bucks. that's clean. But anymore, like people post them... People probably buy them out of some old lady's yard for 400 And they post them on the internet for like three grand. People buy them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're not a bad base, you know, at all to start with. They're pretty light and, you know, an 88 goes into the mile. And, That's what people you know, don't know the because uh, they share the Fox platform. So I would get them because I like crappy, quote unquote, quirky old cars. Like, And then I'm like, this is a perfect chassis because you can buy all these cheap Fox parts that people throw out when they can't finish a build. Yeah. And then... Uh, you know, I think over time, people. I'm, I'm sure there were people that recognized it, but as far as throwing in a turbo LS and doing nothing and making 500 and foot braking a 1040 and driving home worry free, I don't think there's anything better. And the, not that I, I hate the word sleeper personally, but I'm like I just like crappy cars. But I understand that's that's what I like. Is uh, the biggest thing is if you have a Fox body and someone sees burnout marks and you're at the stoplight and your car is idling, they're like it was that guy. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's known. So I would have Fairmonts, like my one Fairmont made 720 wheel and it foot braked the 968 at 145. And I drove it two hours to a track, foot braked the 968 at 145 on a 235 radial. And the only suspension work I had done was two kids softballs in the right rear spring. So it wouldn't, it would flatten out the bumper. When you right. launch it, it was on a stock computer, and then I drove home two hours, and I was almost on the same tank of gas. But that car, I could I could foot brake it at like seventy five and annihilate the tires, and I could roll <laughs> past people, and all they would think that it was smoking because it was an old shitty Ford. <laughs> I couldn't tell you the amount That's of awesome. times I did it. Oh, retard! I mean, there's a bunch of my videos where I do like an eleven hundred footer. And I lift because I can't see. The passenger cabin yeah. is completely... My windows are down, but the car is completely filled. And I would go past the cop, and they'd be looking for who did it. 
I have smoke pouring out of every inch of my car. They yeah. never, it was, it could not be that guy. Nope. No, that's, that's pretty that's cool. That's how invisible a Ford Fairmont was. And that's how, what I thought was cool also. Right on. Oh, that's a good question. We'll go over that like fairly soon. I'll just ask it now. A guy says, uh, have you ever played with low octane tuning? I've gotten into it recently out of pure interest. And, uh, some of it's, uh, going pretty good. Um, so I have, uh, what they call like wellhead here. It's like 60 octane. <laughs> and, um, it's just out of curiosity for knock. Yeah. But not, uh, like I saw you had that 87, 87 octane, um, dyno tuning session. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's hard for me to, uh, if I was doing more work in the islands, I would have to do it. You know, like I have to figure out how to manage, you know, some water methanol and some 87 octane. But I can buy fuel so cheap that I just, I guess I haven't invested the time. I was to know. going to I, say I haven't that done any. I was going to answer for you and be like, you do so much performance and you, and everything else that you probably don't mess with it at all. But there's a lot of people on Sloppy that have like a daily-ish driver truck and they're interested in adding some power. And some people... Uh, I'm interested in it because some people are like, why would you even do that? But one of those, one of those trucks, you can probably run 87 with like a 78, 75 that's capable of eight and change. You can probably add 200 horsepower and run 87. And then that, I mean, that would be significant in a truck like that. So. Well, I guess if you were willing to pop the heads off of it and put some big gross thick head gaskets, you know, that would probably be, that would probably pay dividends. Because you're just trying to, uh, you know, you're managing the heat. It's a pretty big chamber or it's a pretty big cylinder. And it, um, it's just, if it, if it detonates or when it detonates, then it gets expensive, right? So it's an interesting, like, thing just been messing with. No, it, it, it's cool. Um, but we have pump ethanol for two bucks and change. So we're super spoiled down here. Yeah, mine is the same. Until gas went up to insanity recently, ours was like a dollar thirty, and then uh, mostly it hovers around two bucks. And uh, that's cool. But now it's like it's still not that bad. It's a dollar less than premium, which is significant. Uh, I think that we're. I think I saw three sixty three today. Maybe that was the number. Yeah, oh, gas premium? is back up. Yeah. yeah, ours is like almost four. Yeah, no, it's just the cycle we're in. Yep. Oh, here, so. uh, I had a good one. Uh, I've recently started looking at coolant pressure and pan uh, pressure, like you were talking about vac and stuff. I've never done, I'm interested now that you talked about that because you always have a significant vacuum pump. Uh, or like you were saying, how can it be in vacuum unless you're pumping? That's my presumption, but coolant pressure and pan pressure or vacuum is interesting to me, obviously. Yeah, you have to, uh, you, you have to establish a baseline with the coolant pressure. And then, um, if your ECU will do it, like for us, if that thing's got 40 psi of coolant pressure, the run gets aborted because if it blows a radiator up, or blow the hose off of it, then you're ice skating on coolant. And I've done that and it's not fun. Um, 
So it's it's a good safety to have, but you have to have a baseline. If you try to put like the sensor on the engine, you're just going to get white noise out of it. So I, I have it on a, a leash in the uh, radiator. And then as far as the pan vac, it's kind of the same thing. You um, put the engine together. If the if the system will maintain vacuum, you know, assuming it's boosted um, and you're not on methanol because on methanol, it's really hard to maintain vacuum because the ring seal has changed so much because the fuel wash. Hmm. So that was a pretty interesting thing. Like the pan vac between gasoline, ethanol and methanol, you know, like it changes. So that should speak to the, um, the ring seal of the engine, obviously. But it's pretty cool because if you, uh, let's say you, you, you tear something up and the pan vac goes positive, you shut the rundown, like you're saving money on parts. It's going to cost you a round, but you may have gone through that round and had a fire if things got really ugly. Yeah, that's the more and more I'm pushing on these stock bottom vents and, and I'm, they're survivable. Well, I'll, I'll say, uh, my buddy Cameron that does transmission stuff and he's in the chat. He has a Crown Vic that's 4,150 pounds. And we have put it into like the 880s at 150 wow. on it. It has a stock moving truck, six liter in it. And, uh, the, and we've slowly worked up to that with that car and learned a lot about like converters and keeping stuff out. Like on an LS, I think, uh, getting it below 5,500 is a death sentence. Like hitting it with a right. lot of load at low RPM just folds the rods. And I used to think. Yep. There was a horsepower limit, but not really. It's an RPM and piston speed and some other issues that force the rod the, to break. But yeah. uh, the other thing that I've been learning is I started looking at coolant pressure, and then I talked to some guys that do high-end stuff, and I'm like, I'd like to do a cutoff. Since we're leaning on them so much, I'd like to do a cutoff for coolant pressure. But then I run into people that are like, the safety's no good because the time you get coolant pressure, the whole motor's done. And I, I would well, it depends on how it's uh, depends on the fastener system, and it depends on whether or not it's it's flexing or if it just lets go. So, like in your condition with the stock stuff, it's going to let go. With my condition, with you know, um, billet chunk of aluminum and nine sixteenths head gasket or, or head studs and and a firing head gasket, it'll start to make some pressure. It'll show you the pressure. And you could make a whole run and just, hey man, we're up, we're up eight pounds of coolant pressure. Do you want to run it again or you want to go home? Oh, because if we run it again, up. it's going to hurt. It's going to be hurt. Whereas ours so, just would dunk it. Yeah. So you guys, you know, like, um, it depends on how the engine will fail, what the, how much, how, if you're overusing the parts grossly, then yeah, coolant pressure is probably not going to help you. But if you like have a good balance between the power output of the part, you know, the parts capacity and the power you're running at, you can watch the coolant pressure as a telltale. Well, I would say we're so, we're so, uh, we've been slowly working our way at it. Uh, you know, we do have a lot of baselines, so deviating from that would be good. And then, like you mentioned, is what I was thinking, so you don't blow up a rad. Like, it'll shut ignition off or something. Right. Because you have pressure, and you did hurt the engine, but you didn't ice your tires at 150. Mm -hmm. Yep, for sure. So do you think it would save, you think it would rock it up fast enough to like knock a freeze out plug before it kills the engine? Uh, I think when you blow a freeze plug out, it's, it's, it's a, it's likely to be a pretty uniform simultaneous situation. So if you, um, if you 
Uh, well, I'm saying if you lead up, if you say uh, say the thing never goes over 13 pounds of coolant pressure, so at 20 you just knock ignition. Do you think it would be yep. fast enough to not uh, push water out of everything and kill you? Or is it already well, done and on that climb? I guess it depends on engine and fasteners. Well, you, like you here, can, what you can have in certainty is it's worth trying to save your butt. It, exactly. Right. It's worth trying. So if if you if you have an engine that um that you have a, a tuning error and it blow torches or you blow the head off of it, like um, like a manual transmission car with a lot of boost, when you let the clutch out, you can watch the coolant pressure go up and then settle back down over the run because oh, the engine kind of like comes back into shape. Um, it just depends on the, uh, the configuration. You know, like most of the time that I've seen situations where the coolant pressure would not help is when the um, the system is shocked heavily quickly. Oh, okay. You know, like you're 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 turning on a nitrous kit. You're letting the clutch out at you know a high level of boost. Like areas that it's just a snap change in stress. I think the coolant pressure is less likely to help you. Whereas if you're quarter mile racing, you have a handle on it, but you've got some erosion of components. It's a good warning light. Because what we do is we, uh, it's a boost ramp. So we leave and then we escalate as we go. So that would have a really good chance of saving everything because it's slowly yeah. working on cylinder pressure. And then yeah. I do the same thing. I learned, uh, uh, I had like a, a thing where I thought that the Rife sensor that, uh, Motion Raceworks came out with the combination thread in, uh, coolant temperature and pressure sensor was a cool yep. idea and then someone i know installed it and we looked at the data and it was like a really bad heart arrhythmia ekg yeah yeah it's just a it's just got the shakes and then motion did an entire video not to put them on the spot but to put them on the spot they did a video showing how to install it and look at the data and it was like i'm like how can you guys talk about that being used at all you can't that you can't see at all what that is it's so awful. It was like zero sixty, zero six. I'm like, what? That means nothing. Uh, so what I did is I put a sensor in my upper rad hose, and it is beautifully smooth, like you said, yep. on a leash or whatever. And I was like, man, like that's a. They should somehow resolve that or do some sort of filtering or something. I I don't know. It's pretty terrible. Yeah, the um, filtering can sometimes help. You know, depending on the sampling rate, but I think that coolant pressure getting it out of the engine is is a fruitless deal. I figured, like, because of the water pump and everything in there, it's swinging in and out of the chamber, and all sorts of crazy shit is happening. Well, it's, so. it's um, you know, mouth sensors do a really neat job of dampening. Like, if you ever worked on an engine that you could see the valve float in the maps in the map trace, huh. you know, like that's that's a real thing, right? So map sensors happen to dampen pretty well the the noise in the plenum. But the coolant pressure thing, it just seems like those pressure sensors don't do a good job dealing with that. They just they're just dirty data. Oh Mark says he has his right on the thermostat housing in his water pump and it is nice and smooth. So that's a good one for people wanting What kind of engine? L S. Okay. I wouldn't think it would be smooth. I thought the water pump would have a lot to say about that, but I guess not. Is it, uh, so it's on the outlet side of the water pump? 
Yeah, so there's like the thermostat housing right on the. Right. That's where he says he has it. Well, but he may be in a better spot than on the cylinder header in the block because at least he's near. Because like, when does the pump cavitate? You know, what's the pump speed for? How even is the water pressure throughout the block? You know, like his his housing his mounting position may be just fine because it may have constant action versus. Um, erratic action. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. So I think the water pump area will be bad, but you're saying it has constant pressure. At least that might be the best place for it in the housing. Yeah, on the Bonneville car, we we tried a few different spots for water pressure, and um, and it just led us into how poorly the water pump was performing at speed. You know, so if he's got a good clean signal, he's got a good clean signal. I would say, um. If you have the channels of data and the sensors laying around, maybe you check in a few spots. But if you just want to know, like, the quick and dirty way on it, the 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 radiator tank is pretty surefire. Other cars that I've messed with, they welded a eighth-inch nipple to the the core of the side of the radiator in the face. Yeah. And screwed in by the hoses. Yep. And that is also smooth. So Yeah. Oh, this is good. What is your favorite car that you have built? I guess personal or customer or both. Uh, I'd say the white super that we have just because of the amount of fun we've had with it and the amount of, uh, just overall, um, um, memories, I guess. What is your least favorite aspect of your job? And then what is your favorite aspect of your job? Um, The least favorite would be the physical pain that's starting to happen from the overuse of some components, you know, like oh, this yeah. hand, this hand is starting to act up like that sucks. You know, you, you get around a guy that's been, that's 65 or 70 years old. He's been wrenching and his hands are all balled up like that. That's probably the worst thing or the chemicals. Um, I would say those are the worst, the worst parts of the job. Uh, the best parts would be the um the cars and the people you know like getting to meet people that are that are getting to meet people that are um really excited about their projects and if their projects are cool um and they're having fun to kind of remind me that that's what I'm doing you know yeah i can identify with that for sure like the having fun that's why i don't do a lot of serious stuff because i'm like you're taking this is a hobby of mine as soon as i take it too seriously it's not fun and i don't want to ruin it so that's why i think it's cool when someone just shows up like as part of the sloppy mechanics thing it's kind of garbage and kind of good and then it surprises everybody and you're like oh look at that and they're like wow you know and i see stuff that uh, I have personally built uh, my one project I called a Fairmont 3 because I would just buy them in order and change the combination in a bunch. So I've actually done a lot of Fairmonts, but I've owned six physically. So the one car as part of like a don't BS me thing, I bought it the crappiest 4.8 I could buy, which is like $150 long block. And then I bought one of the crappiest turbos at the time that was smaller, and it was a 7665 Chinese turbo. 
and uh, I built a hot side out of spare exhaust parts that was it's probably it's been circulated on the internet quite a bit, and I'm like that's my hot side, and uh, it's <laughs> disgusting. It is disgusting, and uh, the car with the stock cam and valve springs went like an eleven six, and then I did a, I showed the importance of like small cam and valve springs, and it went a ten six. So, and it was pump gas meth, and it would just destroy the tires and foot brake high tens all day. Uh, what a beast. And then, I mean, I changed yeah. that. That, the second combo revision of that was the car that foot brake 960s. So, it was like it's the same ass. thing, but the different turbo kit each time, just showing people, you know, what, what do you want to do and what, how do you want to do it? Because, the car with the ugliest hot side in the world never had a problem and would absolutely annihilate tires making like 560 wheel. So. Yeah. Well, it matters as you go up. Like if you look at, um, how a Grand National was plumbed, you know, you look at, uh, like take one of those, um, you know, there's some cast manifolds that the one bank feeds into the other bank, you know, and then the turbo mounts on the end. Well, you start leaning on that thing and it wants to keep blowing that one side head gasket. So once it keeps tearing up that side of the engine and then you put a, even a basic short log manifold where you can then have two tubes going up to the turbo and you don't tear up that side of the engine again. Hmm. You know, there's, it depends on how much uh, heat you're trapping in the engine. You could have things pretty wrong. You know, that's the awesome thing about turbochargers. Yep. A lot can be wrong. And it'll be okay, but when you start leaning on it, that's when it, that's when the ugly stuff starts um, starts resurfacing and costing you money. Well, that's what I tell people is for the five hundred thing, you can ignore almost everything and it'll be fine. But then I obviously, yeah. I obviously understand that like your Supra making retarded amount of horsepower per cylinder, it's the sum of all things to get there. Because there's some people that want eight fifty and they're building it like the five hundred horsepower Fairmont. It's not going to happen. Like you're missing out on a lot of that. So yeah, no, I I I will. Um, the 500 with a V8, you could have so much, so much, not right, and just have an incredible amount of fun. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's all I did is I did everything wrong that I could. The car, the car that went tens, a first car that I built that went tens had 40 percent converter slip. Till I learned about how to make that better. Four, 40. Did uh, it have oil in it? It just, it was like the, I bought the TH400 and converter from some boomer guy. And it was probably a good converter for a 180 horsepower small block. But yeah. smashing it with 460 turbo car. And then the other issue was, I, it was a three speed and I like to drive it. I put 273 gears in it. Oh, yeah, that'll so make it super I bad. I lost all the mechanical advantage. It was fine. Yeah. It, it drove on the highway great, but as soon as you hit it with that 560, because I remember trapping like 130, but it was at like 6,800 through the traps, which should have been like 200 miles an hour. Oh, my God. But I didn't know enough then, and I was just busy going tens for four grand, laughing at everybody. Yeah, that converter conversation with the gear ratio is pretty fun because... You know, we we went from a three seven to a three nine to a four eleven, and finish line RPM didn't change, just a slip. That's something I've learned you too. Know, yeah, because the converter could just work better, it could couple you know? better. Yeah, you think yeah. you're you think you're out, but tightening it up, 
because I've run into that a few times. One of my friends, uh, he has like a 368 in the 8th door slammer radial car. He said the same thing. He said, go up. That was that Fairmont. He's like, go up in your ratio. You're hurting your converter. Go go up. Go to like a 410. Yeah. yeah. No, that's real. Because a lot of times, uh, I've just recently, like yesterday, someone was like, yeah, I'm building a turbo car. I'm going to put like 323s, 327s in it. And I'm like, no, don't do not do that. And because I had to explain to them, like Cameron's car, 4,100-pound Crown Vic, uh, does 373s and a 28. I'm like, almost every 800 horsepower, 3,000-pound car, uh, 800 to 1,000 horsepower, is like a 28 and 373 car. And some of them benefit from the 410. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Your dream vacation spot that you've never been to. <laughs> Making you think. Man, I've been a lot of places. Oh, well, then you might have hit them all. Yeah, I don't... Um, maybe that... Uh, I guess Bora Bora is like all that's left. Well, you can say I've been everywhere I want to go, and that's the answer. Bonneville. Um, uh this is a good one uh i have my own feelings about this what would you do in a air to water intercooler to work for street use i would i was gonna say uh air to water or air to air but it's a use case scenario right um i think that most of those systems have a fairly inadequate water flow um, so I would try to have as much water flow as possible and as proper as a heat exchanger. And I would be receptive to water pressure because all the air to water stuff, you know, the OEM stuff, it had a, uh, you know, it had a threshold and it would, it would work. So if you have like a 0304 Cobra or one of those, factory supercharged Corvettes, they all kind of do the same thing. They behave the same. The systems that did better, like a Ford GT, the first thing they addressed was the water flow. They had a much higher volume pump. So I would say um, go into your air-to-water system knowing that you probably can't get enough water flow and map it out with as much water flow and heat exchanger as possible, and that'll be your best-case scenario. Because you can't add ice, and most of the time you can't add, you know, cooler core. Because if you could, you you wouldn't be in those those restrictions. You know what I mean? So, and and if you had a bigger cooler core, once the water's hot, the water's hot, right? So, just doing your best to exchange that water as many times as possible across the proper heat exchanger. Uh, this is good too. How does an inexperienced kid go about getting a vehicle dyno or a, a vehicle dyno tuned? What should I be discussing with the tuner, and what should I be telling the tuner aside from my combo? I almost I get asked this every now and then. I a list a checklist would be beneficial, but I would say each tuner should be asking you the questions that he needs answered. And if they're not asking you a bunch. Uh, it might be suspect, or I guess they'll just figure it out when you get there. I guess it all depends on workflow. Yeah, it's um, the the landscape with the tuning has changed so much. You know that 
everybody has a dyno. Everybody's an expert. Everybody's trying to make that, whatever the rate is, you know, tuning that, um, I'd, I would, I would base it heavily off of the person's, um, reputation and experience and probably do more listening than talking, you know, and if the guy really is making a living doing dyno tuning, he's going to hit you with a pretty serious checklist and help you understand that if you don't do that, if things go wrong in that checklist that end the dyno session, you're going to have to pay him for his time because that's his time, you know? Um, but I, you know, on Facebook, you see people quickly gain popularity, especially if they're in a community that doesn't have a lot of talent in it and they just become these authority tuner guy. And, uh, I think those guys are probably the most difficult to deal with because they, they never really cut their teeth. They just saw an opportunity and took it. And, um, and I would feel bad for a young person that didn't know, didn't know the right questions to ask. So I would, I would probably say, um, before you go to a tuner guy, you, you really do a lot of research and it isn't in just some short lived, uh, space on the internet. My buddy Chris Ortiz says all the time, uh, he goes, the, the latest tuner shop, the latest six month tuner, the latest and greatest. Cause they always, where he is, uh, they are expensive cause they're knowledgeable and good. So someone shows up and they're like $150 street tunes with HP tuners, you know? Right. And they're like all over that guy. And then they're, you know, talking bad about, uh, my buddy Chris, but then they're gone in four months. Yeah. And then no one's going to show up and do it for less. That's going to give you a good result. No, you should be happy to, um, you know, like I think that, uh, if you could buy an experienced guy's time for say 1500 a day, like, like a real actual experienced guy's time, you should be pretty happy to pay that because what if, what if then the project's done? What if then it can be raced? What if then it can be enjoyed? What if you don't lose that engine? You know, what if you win that race? Like all those compounding good events that can happen if you really, find a talented person to do that part of the job. I mean, the money is, the money is cheap compared to that $400 tune up guy that your stuff breaks and that event comes to town and you go to, you know, you pay the entry fee and the thing's breaking up and, you know, you, you, you just feel embarrassed in front of all your local friends and, you know, you get razzed for a year because your shit doesn't run. Like you can avoid all that. Just trying to find a really talented guy that can, that can give you that last component of the project so you can start enjoying it. Plus those guys that are doing the cheap tuning, the road tuning and stuff like, man, the, the chances of them having an accident on the road with your car and you having to just have a total loss, that that's be something you should consider because when you deal with a real business that has insurance, if God forbid something happens with, your car, they can at least make you hold on it versus some guy that, you know, is doing road tunes for a hundred bucks or whatever. Like that should be a consideration, you know, big time. I think that's something uh, that people need to hear. So that's one of those, like I want to do a series about uh, expectation, like managing your expectations. So someone good is going to be worth a lot of money. So someone's like, man, more than 400 bucks, I'm out of here. But they don't understand what you bring so people just need to hear that number 
because same thing like my buddy Cameron that has a transmission shop he said you know people will cry at 1500 a day but he says now that he runs a business it's totally worth it and a lot of something Cameron says a lot is uh, price yourself out of these problem cars and then you won't have the right. the clientele or who not to talk down on people but someone expecting a hundred dollars for a tune is you know you probably don't want to deal with them if you don't have to at some point no but i will still um if someone lands in my inbox i ask for pictures of the engine department i point out things that are obviously wrong you know i, I try to kind of walk them walk them into a best case scenario even if they're never gonna you know, if it's a computer that I don't want to work on, I still, I still try to leave them better than I found them because because it it's the right thing to do, and especially if they don't know enough to to handle this stuff on their own. Man, if they break their car, it's it's so much money to fix. You know, like that's that's not that's not cool. The way I do it, because it's just for fun is uh they'll pay a flat rate for i'll do a deposit because i i haven't had many people flake but anymore it's been bad so i have them do a deposit and then we schedule a day and then it's a flat amount of time for the money and uh so if they show up and it doesn't run on the trailer uh, i'm like well we're kind of done but i'm going to give you homework i'm going to look over as much as i can and yeah so i'm going to give you the time you spent i'm not going to be that i have a bunch of other friends and i've heard this where the car's not ready. They're like later. Yeah, you can't do that because you're. Um, it's not your fault, but you, you just got to be more friendly to people. Well, like I, I always say to these guys, it's their first swing. They can't know it. They're always kind of upset. Like I wasted your time. I'm like not, not really. I was going to be here anyway. If this was good or bad, so I always call it homework. I'm like, you know, you shouldn't do this. You should. They don't know. You can't come down on them really hard. Right, uh, especially if they're there and not a guy on a keyboard on the internet, he's trying. He might need yeah. a little, a couple pushes. Or I'm like, you shouldn't yeah. do that. This is wrong. Blah blah blah. Like I can hear it misfire on the trailer, and I'm like, if you have up and forwards that are burning wires, we're not going to get far today because it's going to continue to burn them. Right. Uh, just stuff like that. And the other thing I think that go bodes well with what I do is I make fun of all that stuff on the internet or I make memes about it or I say how stupid it is to do certain things. Not, I think I come off in a bad way. A lot of times, sometimes I am, like I said, sometimes I am a jerk and sometimes I say stuff before I think, but, uh, I'm trying to get to the root of it. And, uh, anymore, I used to be like a nice guy, like, Oh, I think your plug wires are going to be a problem. But now I'm like, these are going to burn all day. Like I just changed my, no, if you start yeah. dancing around it, people are like, oh, well, maybe it's it's misfiring because you... And I'm like, those are going to burn all day. They're touching. Then people are like, they argue, and they're like, uh, what are those, the five signs of denial or something? But then they want to argue. Five stages of denial. Yeah, like bargaining or, you know, acceptance, whatever. But uh, they're like, it won't burn it as high temp. It has the little finger sleeve. And I go, hey, bud. Do me a favor and put a piece of chicken in tin foil and put it on your grill. Is that going to cook? Right. And they're like, "Yeah." Right. I'm like, "Okay, the silicone wire is going to cook, bud. It's there's right after maybe." Yeah, not. I normally just watch them. I I in person it's easy because you can just watch them and see their threshold, and I I just try to give them enough information that they don't shut down. You know, because the glaze. It, the well, yeah, because you're, you're, you're not trying to hurt their feelings. You're trying to help them, but sometimes it's a lot of information. 
But on the internet, it's, it's, it's almost at this point pointless to try because people behave too poorly behind keyboards. Very diplomatically said, but my wife says the same thing. Like I can ramble, uh, about a subject quick enough where I, she calls it a knowledge bomb. I'll quickly like flatline someone's brain. Uh, I won't think about uh, here, but I'll do like what you do. I'll go until they struggle and I'll be like, do you know what I'm saying? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, no, no, you don't just be true. I try to push people to be like, uh, just be honest because that's going to get you your best result. So when I'm tuning like a drift car or I think it's a drift car or if it's a car where I'm like, do you beat the shit out of this thing? Cause there's two separate tune ups. Like, is this going to get a two hour cool down and you're going to inspect it? Or, or are you just going to take this sideways out of your driveway every day? And right. I'm not your mom or the cops. I want to know to make this extremely conservative or not. So, and, uh, I've done a bunch of, uh, I'm pretty proud of it, not to be funny, but like I did a 700 horsepower drift car on a stock bottom end with a stock computer. And I haven't touched it in like two years. So I'm like, oh, that's, that's awesome. At least, uh, cause it always worries me when someone's going to be doing that. Cause I know a drift car just sits and idles and then they smash the shit out of it. And then it just sits and idles again. Like right. that's all they do. And I'm like, man, it's easy to get into like a temperature situation and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, well, especially if they don't have the cooling system addressed because the radiator doesn't see a lot of air when the car's sideways. That's it's why a lot of those so guys, I saw, like, they yeah. make scoops in the rear doors and vents out the... Well, the, the, put the radiators in the back. That, that makes them quite a bit better. Uh, if a car is falling boost... If a car has a falling boost curve at high RPM, is this usually a sign of the compressor is out of flow or the EMAP is too high and forcing the gate open further, thus slowing the compressor down? Well, it depends on how you're manipulating the wastegate. If you're not manipulating the wastegate with a four-port or a piece of metal wire tying it shut, uh, return spring, like we talked about. Yeah, that's a pretty um, that's a pretty organic way of knowing that the turbocharger cannot keep up with the demands of the engine. So if you force the gate shut, you just drive the exhaust back pressure up, and then you have um, you're not going to gain any power. You're going to lose it. You know, diminishing returns are, are upon you. Um, so yeah, you, you just need a bigger turbocharger. If you don't have any leaks, if it's falling off, it's usually around. Yeah. The leaks, run. the leaks are, uh, a bigger, you know, a bigger problem than people think like boost leak checking your turbocharged car is just do it once a month. It's super easy and you'll find little things that are, that stack up against you. Uh, oh, this is a, have we covered the RPM act, which that's like a giant subject. So I don't know if you even want to touch on that. I, uh, I don't know enough about it. Neither do I. <laughs> I mean, there's so much fast moving media that you can get emotionally spooled up about nowadays that it's like, you know, like we were talking about that. I'm like, I don't even watch it. I don't, I don't care to be. Yeah. You, um, what are you going to do? Last time you I know? saw actual news was I was in one of my data centers in the break room. They have CNN like blaring 
And what they were, what the reporters were doing was reading things off the internet. They weren't even reporting news. They were like, someone tweeted what's going on here. And I'm like, cool. Right. Like, uh, yeah. Okay. The, uh, it's, it's really, uh, I'm like, is this the news now? I haven't seen it in a long uh, time. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's a, it's a, a quickly deteriorating situation. The news is a quickly deteriorating situation, but. Uh, a bunch of people are like, I'm moving to Florida, blah, blah, blah. Can I work for you? What's the next step? How much do you pay your guys? <laughs> They're just asking like how to get in and work there. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's 40, $44,000 a year is a starting pay that you'll pay me for me to teach you. <laughs> no, um, we're always, we're always looking to hire strong players. So, um, you know, if there's someone that, is thinking about relocating. We, you know, we just took a, we just took a couple guys on that that relocated to to come be a part of the company here, and um, you just send in a resume, and you know, there's a process that they go through, and if you you're a good fit here, you're a good fit here. But the 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 pay is um, performance based, so you know, um, most of the people that that come here that have good drive they make uh good money <laughs> a guy just he's truthful here he says 44k for you to teach us that's a deal better than a lot of trade schools yeah i just need about a hundred kids and uh i'll be all set no those trade schools are rough though i um you know maybe not all of them but some of the really flashy ones uh i think really take those kids for a ride um there's some local schools that I've um, talked to and they really have a neat program and the kids really want to learn, but the flashy ones, the ones that are appealing with good advertisements, man, you could really go for a ride and end up with a decent amount of debt. So careful who you pick as a mentor. Oh, and one guy keeps asking, I think he's asked like five times. He says, what are the limits of a four port, which he's not elaborating, but I think he means a four port boost controller like a mac valve and that's an entire situation about the car back pressure low, yeah. like wastegate spring like it's tough to answer um, that for people i mean we have a four porter on our white car and i can make uh you know, i can make 80 pounds of manifold pressure with it but what's your um, base amount of boost though what's your spring at what's well uh 18 pound 18 and then at a hundred percent, you have you can get eighty, or you didn't even. Oh, talk about I would that. never. I've never been to a hundred because the IATs are bad enough that okay. there's not any power to be had. But um, in decent air, you know, it it's uh, 60 percent, and it, it it'll make eighty pounds. And is your back pressure? You can see good? the chase. Um, at that point, I'm about uh, ten over with a ninety four one hundred three. So. You said 10, 10 over boost pressure? Yeah. So like 80 pounds, 90 EMAP. Okay. Yeah. Well, but it's, just it's not happy one there. One. Yeah, it's not happy there. That turbo and that engine seem to be um, uh, best around 70. And I think it's just air density related because the intercooler just can't keep up. You know, the outlet temperature really gets ugly when you get into those boost levels. You can't. You can't run from it anymore. You you have to have a 
a really good air to water and then a certain level of acceptance for what's going to happen after that. And then I would say to him, like, uh, obviously a high efficient turbo kit, your swing is huge. And uh, a bunch of cars, like especially with like not a lot of back pressure, well designed. Uh, I've done like, mostly I tell people that have certain combos, I'm like spring for like four pounds. Like get whatever spring you have that you can do this. Because when I'm tuning it, I want to see the lowest and work my way up. And then what I have is a uh, shop air for the dyno brake. I have a, uh, I tee off of that and I have one of those high resolution, low pressure, uh, regulators. Okay. So I'm like, no matter what happens, I can put 50 pounds on top. And by then yep. we're going to know if something's awful or not. Most of the time I don't need to go over 20, but we, we yeah. can get there. No, that's, that's a good way to do it. But, um, the four port, I think the answer would be, um, the four port will cover up back pressure pretty easily, and that doesn't mean you're getting a good quality air. So if you have a a 15 pound spring and a turbo that makes 42 with the gate plugged, I mean a four port will get you there, but you'd be better off lowering the duty until the back pressure starts to come back down and the manifold pressure doesn't change, because just stuffing the gate shut isn't. Uh, it isn't good for anybody. Well, yeah, like I wanted to mention for him, I've had some setups that are awful, and they have a four-port, so you would think they'd have a wide dynamic range. And, like, they make eight pounds on a base spring, and they make 24 with the four-port pinned. I'm like, okay, there's a problem with this car because it should be... Uh, most recently, I did a 2,500 turbo truck, and it would make four, 3.7 pounds on gate, and around 42, it was already making 26. So it was huge... As far as yeah. range. And uh, right around then it was one-to-one -one and not making power over uh, like 18. So I never went much over 18. It made, on 13 pounds of boost, it made 721. And then after that it was kind of downhill. And that's actually the new owner is asking in here. He has that car, that truck had a Duramax intercooler setup. So it was super clean. 2500 with a Duramax front end. And okay. then he says, so about intercooler pressure drop, how bad is five to six pounds at 850 wheel? I think that you have to have, um, more information, a fast IET, uh, and, and just be more concerned of the air that's entering the engine. Because if the exhaust, you know, as the drive pressure goes up, the exhaust pressure goes up, right? So, if you're five or six pounds of pressure drop across the intercooler um, results in a desirable air inlet temp, then I'll take that as, as long as it's not creating a bunch of drive pressure. So if, you're, if your turbo system is laid out to where the respective banks feed the turbocharger pretty evenly, there's not any gross bends where one bank is trapping heat, like I would just deal with it. Although five to six sounds pretty excessive. Hmm. But what's the inlet? What's the air in? What's the air out? I'd be more concerned with the temperature, temperature than that. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. But you have to look at the temperature on both sides of the engine because the more back pressure you have, the more heat is trapped in the engine. So if you look at back pressure as a function of heat trapped in the engine, it's a bit more concerning, right? Oh, okay. Because that air that's trying to leave the engine can't leave. It's latent. It's just hanging out. 
Well, and, and that has a certain effect on the next cycle because your, your, the quality of the intake of air into your lungs and the size of the intake into your lungs has a lot to do with the exhale, the last exhale. So if the engine can't exhale that heat, if you can't get that heat out of the cylinder, it's going to be more, le- more likely to get tripped up and start eating itself. So you have to look at those, the drive pressure, in the in the inlet temperature, like I would look at those as a relationship and make a decision based off of that, and not fix it on pressure drop across the intercooler. Someone's saying I don't agree with this. Someone's giving this guy clues and saying a four port. Will you lose low end or will you gain low end? And he says uh, it'll it'll help a lot because it keeps the gate closed. I don't agree. It's a catalyst. At some point, it has to take it to make it. So it's not like CO2. Uh, at some point, it's shutting off the lower reference and stopping the gate from opening early. But it's not right. It's not doing like what CO2 does. It's not going to be significant, I think, in most people's eyes. It's not. I've never noticed it with uh, leaving it on, what, closed loop and having it uh, try to stuff it until it gets close to target. It's a little bit better, but not, you know. Now, that... Um... That run the system two or three times back to back to back and see how the response changes with heat. Um, the the four port, in my opinion, is for cars with um, bigger turbo, like a, a front wheel drive Honda, and a four port is a pretty good match, right? Because in high gear you're going to be able to really give it a lot of power, and in low gear you you can't because you don't have the traction. So that's a good four port candidate. Like for me on my car, I have two three ports and I'll have um, a low enough boost level in first gear that I don't have to ride a lot of TC. And then I can, I can have all the power the turbocharger can make if I start cracking that other gate open, you know, or that other solenoid open. And it makes for a pretty linear control because unfortunately for the four port, because it is adding air to the top of the gate and deducting air from the bottom of the gate, the rain, the, 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 um, control is fairly coarse to where you'll get like 1% duty equals a larger manifold pressure change than you'd like. Right. And that it's going to be dependent on systems, you know, per, per system and how the systems are set up. Sometimes it's kind of a butthead of a problem and other times it's just fine. It depends on the car. That's you know? right. I'm, I'm speaking relatively like a turbo V8 LS with a decent sized turbo. Uh, in my opinion, the four port is better. You spring it really low so you can have, obviously if it's not a race yeah. car, if it's not a race car, uh, you can have a wide dynamic range. That's what's nice. Also, I've seen where the turbo is big, like that 40% on a four port, a three port adding to the top could probably get the same effect. But uh, I just like having more than I need because if you run out of a three port, you got to respring or do whatever. But then right. I think a lot of people are underestimating the power that one of these good setups is making, and you lose drivability if you're sprung for like ten pounds and it makes six hundred and it's a Fox. Like it's almost never going to be uh, usable. And one of my favorite things is I call it dial a boost, and I use an AEM uh, twelve position switch. And yep. I, I can plot that over. I recently did one for my friend that generated a lot of interest again, where I plotted uh, the percentage to a three port, and then I did an ethanol offset on a 3D table. 
So if ethanol goes down, it lowers the max boost. And if ethanol is yeah. in, so people were like, well, and I'm like, well, that's the thing. A lot of people have never experienced a standalone where you can do whatever you want to do, whatever you right. can think about. You can plot 2D, 4D, 3D tables. And because uh, they were like, man, if you can make 26 pounds on the end of this dial and you forget it's cranked and you, you have like 10% ethanol now, I'm like, well, you just, you, you lower it with the, uh, you change the target because of content and then you can leave it turned all the way up all the time but then what's nice is you can turn that down to super low and then anybody can relatively drive it because it's down yeah. to 400 wheel yep. but uh yeah those are all if people aren't i like to go on a tangent because people uh unbeknownst to me i used to think i talk too much but then i think a lot of people learn when i yeah right no that um the that sounds like you're talking about like uh the newer Holly software where it allow you to create your own axes and stuff Yeah, where you can do that, that max boost versus ethanol content. And I do like mile per hour and, and that, and that someone may, th there is a difference. And that's why I, I said it to you guys. He says, Matt, there's a big difference between a six O and a three O, but that's why I said in my experience in turbo V eights at LS sizes right. with a decent turbo, because yep. yeah, uh, a front wheel drive turbo Honda, like we talked about, you can't use nearly any of it on the line and you, you almost need that mechanical, what I call mechanical boost control is like the lag and the later power because it needs to be put in so late. Yep. Meanwhile, like uh, a drag radial versus world car, uh, is going to leave and they want 40 pounds in a half a second and then they want 60 pounds in 1.1 seconds. Yeah, that's different. So you would CO2 is uh, incredible. And then like my buddy Frank runs like a one pound spring because he wants to be able to. There's no point in yeah. having a spring when you have 75 pounds on top of the thing. <laughs> no, CO2 is definitely uh, it definitely has its place in drag race. I, well, I think whether you have a, a single three port, a four port, two three ports or CO2, they all have their place. And it's kind of application specific because not everyone wants a, I mean, CO2 obviously is the most versatile. And if you're going to put that CO2 system on your street car and just deal with the bottle and deal with the opening the bottle and all that stuff, I'd say that's pretty hard to beat. Um, but I'd say for not most all, people's brains, it's out of, and then adjusting it isn't always the easiest unless you do, like I said, a trim pot and everything. But I think uh, now at this point where I set stuff up, a four port and a low gate spring is the way to go. Yeah, yeah, I could get down with that, especially if you if you can um, not have every percent of duty equal more than a pound of manifold pressure, because then the boost controller will get really touchy. You know, you want to have some uh, the control loop in the boost controller needs to be active enough to do its job. Yeah. That you can have targets in different gears and have it meet those targets regardless of engine speed. And if you have a four port that's very touchy, the the boost controller becomes uh, overactive pretty quick. And just it's just uh, it's not ideal to tune that way. Most of what I'm talking about is the Terminator system, and what kind of sucks is they only implemented CO2, which makes no sense, and I've brought this up, and so have pretty much everybody I know. So they took their cheapest budget ECU and put only CO2 on it for boost control. So most of the stuff yeah. I set up is completely open loop, so if the car maxes out on 42, and it doesn't make anything until 
like 15% and 42 is max boost. I changed the scale of the 2D table, obviously, to be the minimum and maximum. So there is better resolution. Or what I can do is if it starts to get really touchy, I change the scale to use most of the table between the touchy part. And the low end is usually it doesn't matter. Like 20 to 30, nothing. Closing in on 40. And then 41, 42, 43 is just, uh, like you said, 5 pounds per per percent. And it starts to get very touchy, but yeah. I, tr I try to blend that as much as possible. And there's some tricks I'm trying, and for some people they work, but I know it's not going to work with everybody. But uh, building a table in the holly, because everything runs off target boost, which is awesome, but if you're not running CO2, it sucks. So what the Dominator and the HP have is a base duty cycle table and then a requested boost amount. So it'll do boost by map it'll do map target you can just choose manifold target and then you can build out a table with a base duty and then it chases it with a pid so they don't have any of that on the terminator which to me makes no sense again because it's a budget ecu for people just starting but what i've started to do is build a 3d table so if you know 30 percent makes 18 so you can make a, t a table that traces itself on 18 target this way and this way and you can put the number there, and then you can lower or raise it. And some people have said they've had success, but like like you and I know, there's if it's if the turbo is really fast on transient and it starts to go nuts, it's easy to overshoot and undershoot or get the yeah yeah that uh that's when that's when a boost controller that has a lot of if and ands becomes your friend. Like, if you looked, if I just took a screenshot of the Motec Boost Controller and sent it to you, you'd be like, oh, okay. You know, because you can, you can do, um, IAT, ECT, vehicle speed, gear, ethanol content, uh, versus max manifold pressure, race time, uh, tire slip, it's like, like a all these things. dimension table. Instead of a well, no, they're a uh, they're mostly one Ds, but they all stack on each other. Wow. You know, then you can get into driver switches, um, rotary dials, all that stuff. But it makes for a pretty neat, a pretty neat end result. You know, but it, I guess it's easy to get tripped up in it if you. Uh, yeah, it's too much for most people, I think. Like that's awesome for something, but you know. I think uh, just trying to explain to people how to set it up or change it is... I, I wouldn't even want to do that for a ice cream and burnouts car. But having a yeah. dial that just makes it go 400, 800. I mean, that's... Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I have the... I, I, I agree on the dial. Um, but the, then the 400, 800, what does it do in second gear? Like, is it killing the tires in second? Because all that stuff kind of has to work together in order for that 800 to be effective. I mean, yeah. 800 in a Fox body in third gear is probably pretty hairy with a manual trans, you know? But if yeah. you can blend it in over vehicle speed and stuff, it, it gets a lot more A lot of times, uh, the 4L80E cars, I set up with a boost by mile an hour, and I show the people how to use it so they can dial it in. And I would say, initially, I make it very trackable, and then I say, keep turning yeah. this up. Uh, and you're doing it off of non-driven wheel? Nah, for those, it's easiest. I mean, I explain that that's the best way to do it is under, you know, non-driven versus driven. But they have an ADE and they they want something that has full power and low power. So that's like the best. And I explain if it spins, it's going to max power. But yeah, 
But then, yeah, it uh, starts to stack up. It would be nice to do undriven and then do a slip table that pulls like electronic throttle or timing or whatever. But it's the strategies for that are awesome, and uh, you know, but most people aren't going to really. Well, it's stuff that you develop on your own, and then you can share it with choice customers. You know, that that could benefit from well, it. Well, I but, show yeah. I do videos where I show all of it because I think that's again. Like, uh, you know that there's 50 ways you could map it, but other people don't. They don't know the software can. So I always try to give, like, that use case where I'm like, hey, if you want it over a mile an hour, it's really useful if you set it up correctly. Or uh, I've done a bunch where it's, because uh, people might not know or they might know, once you get a turbo car lit and it's spinning the tires, to pedal it, you need to almost shut it. Right. So what I do is on the boost by mile an hour, and I do TPS. So I change the boost control. So if it starts to spin and you back out, it's electronically lowering the boost. Yeah. Yep. So that gives you a better pedal feel for a turbo car that's normally a runaway event. Yeah, especially if you have a big enough engine to start to tie the turbo to the engine a little bit. You know, a small engine stuff, it's hard because when it comes out of boost, it just comes out of boost. Yeah. The party's is, over. Like I say, it's like a streetcar V8, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, people that understand what's going on with that can better modulate. So what you do, what I would do for a lot of those people that want this set up, I, they're most comfortable with, I set up wide open to be like 15% more than they can use most of the time or 50% more. So what they'll do is they'll go half throttle and then if it's sticking, they'll keep going. It all depends on driving style. Yeah. Yeah. So I set it up for a bunch of people where they like they want to be able to smash it, and if it spins, they'll go back like a little and then get the boost. And obviously, it's vehicle traction, turbo, all of that. But what I'm trying to explain to people is you can easily map those, and uh, that's what we ran into. Is boost by speed was still igniting the tires, but by doing TPS cross axis yep. too, and then uh, some of those cars. Uh, my Colorado, surprisingly, I could make uh, with a with a, I put a radial pro on it, and about eighty miles an hour, I could put down eight fifty. Surprisingly, but if I if yeah. I if I brought it in nicely and it wasn't smacking it, uh, so my mile an hour table was only between like I could not use much boost at all down low, but about twenty to eighty, it was ramping in. So you can scale that whole table too, but. Yeah, the V5, um, the V5 Holly, they added a lot of the functionality that the uh, Motec 100 series had. Hmm. And that was based off of a conversation that probably took place in 2012, you know, because they're like, well, what, what would you change? And yeah. to be able to define those axes and those tables is really a neat tool to have, uh, to have at your fingertips. But then most people that listen to this, I would say, uh, that's the Dominator and the HP version 5. The Terminator has different firmware and everything. So they don't even have, like the version 5 has traction control specific tables. And actually you have to pay extra for it, a license to unlock all of the advanced tables. I think as incentive for them to create the whole thing. But uh, that's what I mean. The Terminator is budget, so it doesn't have that stuff. What is it? Eight hundred bucks between the Terminator and the Dominator? Oh, it's it's huge difference. The Dominator by itself is two grand, and then you need a harness and everything. And uh, uh, Terminator, 
X that just does engine uh, is $9.99, and that's wideband, engine harness, three and a half inch touchscreen ECU. Oh my God, that's it's so under a thousand dollars. Yeah, so that's, that's why. Brutal. That's why, and then people are just buying it uh, because it's, yeah. they led me on, uh, or they joined me in like six months before they were releasing it, and I was very skeptical. I'm like, so what's it going to cost? Like laughing at them, and then he told me, and I'm like, well, he's like under a thousand. And I'm like, what does that come with? Nothing? Is the ECU under a thousand? Or like what, you know? And then he's like wideband and it's built in wideband, so there's no configuration. And the Holly closed loop fuel is incredible, which I would say most people blow their stuff up by improper fueling immediately. Yeah. So it's got all of that stuff for someone, you know, they don't you don't have to be an expert to have fun, and that's what the whole don't BS me thing is supposed to be. So Yeah, no, the value in that product is uh is stellar. You know, it really is stellar because you don't you don't have to spend a lot or know a lot to have a good amount of fun. And then, like I was saying, if people I put up all my build info and then I put up the tune from it. So if someone wants similar to that functionality, drivability, horsepower, they can get the tune and you can put it on the SD card in the dash, hit load tune. And like a lot of those I've had guys that load. This is hilarious because it has an onboard map you can choose or you can choose an external. I had a guy uh, do the Game Boy tune and start it and drive it to the dyno, and he's like, it's never driven so good, so I drove it here. Well, he had an ethanol content sensor that the handheld doesn't set up, and then he had uh, internal map selected when he had an external. So it was driving around at like 100 kPa, it didn't, couldn't see boost, it had no good air fuel targets, and it had no... Uh, ethanol uh, fuel multiplier. It was running on strictly closed loop and learn table. And he's like, oh, it's never run so good. Man, that, the, the closed loop and the learn table, it, it, it's impressive. The first time I ever used one of those boxes, um, it was, I was off. Uh, it, it was in pounds per hour. I was off by, I had to be off by 25%. And it was a, it was a Liberty supercharged mod Ford. The guy let the clutch out and it had caught the target, you know, almost immediately. And then you just lob the learn table into the main table. Like it's super easy to use. I mean, I, I can't take anything away from those guys as far as like, um, the, how affordable it is and how easy it is to use. And you I know? think their software guys. Like you said, uh, the software is always the first indicator. And when I see that software, uh, it makes sense, especially for people that don't have like prior, because I came from doing Megasquirt stuff because of the budget that I started in. But then I realized the value of this, especially with the cheaper system. It's hard to tell somebody that has a $1,200 car that a $2,700 Dominator is what they need to use. But uh, yeah. I also didn't understand the value behind that. And until I bought one, on my own for the Colorado. And I'm like, this is incredible. Uh, you know, I understand the value now, like you said, uh, company and people that take care of you or good business practice and stuff like, uh, or your time, like the time you spend trying to get it running and trying to screw right. around with it. And, and, uh, but yeah, so that it's, I can't, it's, it's, and then, uh, the X Max will do drive by wire and for like four speed, like a four R seventy W four L 60, four L 80 E. And that's like, it's like another 200 bucks 
for the drive-by-wire stuff and another 200 for the harness for the trans. So it's like 1450 all in. And, right. uh, and you can literally have what people see as it is complex, drive-by-wire for a Lady E overdrive and an engine. And you can literally, I did videos of it where I integrated my 2500, but I'm like, if you have a 6-liter and a 4L80E and a turbo, you're like injectors, cam, 4L80 uh, size, drive-by-wire, and you can start it and drive. Yeah. It's no, I would argue that that's the, uh, it's the best uh, entry-level system option. And they have enough horsepower in that brand to uh, to really forge ahead. Mm-hmm. And the other brands in that price point uh, are giving away product and really trying to work hard for endorsements. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a neat product, you know. I um, I guess I've just become kind of a snob. You know, like there's a local guy that I'm helping, like, but this guy, you know, he's, you know, I've known him for 30 years. So it's like, I'll just pay the difference between the Holly and the Motec and buy the Motec because I have to tune it and I'll just have a better time. Yeah. You know, like for me, it's more about um, enjoying the time, you know, like I, uh, I, um, or you know it, and you can deliver a complex scheme and result way faster. Well, yeah, because when you get into like this, this particular project is a, uh, it's a 32 Ford with a, you know, 550 horsepower small box Chevy with stacked injection. It's going to need really good traction control so somebody doesn't crash it. Well, if you say, well, the Motec is, you know, say it's, $2,500 more or $3,000 more, what's that accident going to cost to wreck a car like that? You'll, you'll probably get killed in the damn thing. Oh, that's true. And, you know, so, so, so to me, um, I, I stack in uh, a lot of scenarios all at once, more so than an ET, um, or a power number on the dyno, you know, like I, I, st- I in these, in these more powerful cars or cars that are more powerful than the chassis really needed to be with drivers that may or may not be ready to, to handle it. The safety aspect of having that is, is too big for me. And that's something that's good insight because I don't really have to deal with that. So right. you have expensive Yeah, If you can cars. put a, a 275 on a car and it makes 700 or 800 horsepower, like you're, you're pretty much, you're pretty much, if, if the road's dry, you've, You've got it under control, you know, especially if you're doing boost versus speed, you can really have a tractable setup. But if you have a, you know, a manual transmission car with a cable throttle and more power than the tires can deal with, then you're simply relying on quickly retarding the ignition timing. And if that doesn't work, you pile some cuts in, but you don't want the cuts to be so hard that they're tearing up valve train parts like you know, all that stuff starts to really come in play quickly. Of course, that's uh, one of the newer, a couple versions ago of the Terminator software, they enabled the soft uh, limiter, soft RPM limiters, where you turn in, uh, it drops cylinders until it gets to the high cut, and then it shuts it off yep. completely. And uh, that, like, uh, is is awesome to, like, because I've seen cars where they smack boost cut and nick a head gasket or break a timing chain. Yeah, boost cut is not your friend. So it's nice to have that uh, soft fallover, obviously, instead of really wrapping stuff. 
So yeah, the the way the Notex always done it is like a they, it's basically a control range. So say you have an eight thousand RPM rambometer with a four hundred RPM control range. At eighty four hundred, it's a hundred percent cut. That's At eighty two hundred, it's fifty percent cut. Like having that control range is a big deal. That's what I noticed too. It's uh, yeah. way easier. So theirs is a high and a low. Same thing. It's a window. So you can write 6,507, so it's dropping cylinders and everything, trying to stop the motor up to yep. the hard cut. And then the hard cut's just the end of the show. But Yeah, but you'll never get there because, because it'll it'll manage it beforehand. Yeah, it does. You know, unless, you, unless you break a drive shaft or something like that. that. The way the Motec stuff was done was uh, um, personal watercraft because the skis coming out of the water is cavitating. Oh. So the limiters were, writ- were written on a on a jet ski, so they really are uh, just really smooth. It's it's a neat deal in that aspect because, like, we had a customer two years ago that he broke the camshaft up out of the cylinder head on an Evo, and it, and it was very poorly done anti-lag. Wow. I mean, it shoved the cam out <laughs> of the head with anti-lag. You know, it's like that stuff happens, man. Like revolutors are, dude. Pops yeah. and bangs. Yeah, I was um, when I was with the uh, uh, Mike Mike Finnegan the other day. He said like um, Warren Johnson said that if you were a driver that you touched the revolutor in one of his pro stock engines, you lost your seat hmm. because he knew how abusive the revolutors were to the valve train. Like for us, two steps are something that sound cool. And people just rattle the two-step and shoot flames and stuff. Like, if you have a coarse two-step algorithm, like, you can really tear some stuff up. Mm-hmm. People don't get that. What's cool is I saw a lot of the Honda guys, are, a lot of people in period are doing it. And a lot of the stuff I would set up does that very, like, load. It's just you hear load come up. That's the way I like yeah. to do it. I don't like the pops and bangs and stupid things. Uh but it was funny to see uh, Boosted Boys did a video recently where they go to Fuel Tech. And, uh, you know, he showed them. He's like, you hear the popping, it's lean. So he, like, changes the whole tune-up. And it does what you'd expect to hear a GTR or an R8 do. It comes up and goes... And it you can hear it. It changes tone because it starts loading the turbos. But it never does stupid fireballs and stuff that people love. Yeah, if you can get the... Um, it's the um, the Mtron does two step stuff without a limiter if you want it, and it sounds really funny. It just parks it at a timing number that holds the engine speed stable. Yeah, and the, and, you know, it, it's really uh, a rabbit hole. You can close the throttle as you approach the limiter, like a lot of OEM stuff to just kind of calm things down. Yeah, and then uh, obviously more than one way to skin a cat. Like you said, if you're not blowing it up. And you're going fast, hitting your goals. Eh. Well, anyway, we'll get a, uh, figure we'll get another one. What's your bedtime over there? It's now. <laughs> I got about a 45 minute, 45 minute cruise home. And I'm oh, going to wow, come okay. here tomorrow and, uh, I figured I keep work seeing on my you. car. I keep seeing you yawn. So I'm like, well, I always tell people they can jump off whenever they want, but I think they, uh, they lose sight of that. It's already bit. Wow! I looked at my live timer and it says four hours and fifteen minutes. So that's plenty. I think people are. All right. 
I think people are plenty inundated with uh, info from today, and we could always do it again. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. All right. I, uh, I uh, again appreciate the uh, the eights for eight. That was fun. That's a fun deal. I and it's good that you're uh, you're helping grow the community. That's important. In a, in a way, right? In a way. <laughs> well, I mean, there's only a there's only a small number of us total, so True. we have to um, behave pretty well together and and try to bring people into the hobby because. You know, a lot of people don't understand what we're into. Now, everyone's saying thanks in the chat. So, yeah, guys, we're get, Jay's got to go to bed. I should go to bed, so it's not your fault. But, uh, yeah, I didn't realize it was that long, but that's what happens when you talk car things. Yeah, it happens. All yeah. right, well, take it easy. I'll talk to you soon. Yep, thanks. Bye. All right, <laughs> bye. Thanks. Well, guys, uh, that was it for Mr. Jay. And uh, we'll see you guys again. I hope you enjoyed it. I got to, uh, I know he had to run, but I'm going to send him a message. It's very thankful. So uh, I forgot to do that. I'm not great with the formalities, but yeah.